Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing well. Just because Halloween is over doesn't mean that these spooky stories stop here. Let us begin and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Has anyone else seen the headless bodies in the forest? Written by 02321. Abby has been my best friend since we've been kids. We grew up living a few houses away from each other. Since the moment we met, we became inseparable. I've known that I've loved her for a long time, but only recently I realized that I was in love with her. At first, I thought it would be better to keep that fact a secret. Soon it became clear this would come out in one way or another. I was never good at hiding anything from her. I decided that I would tell her on my own terms. After I told her everything, it would be different. She would either feel weird about our friendship, or by some miracle she would feel the same way about me. We lived near a small forested area with a large pond in the middle. There was a dock that we often went to just to hang out to sometimes skip class if we felt like it. In a month, we would be graduating high school, and I felt like it was a good time to come clean on my feelings. Since we both loved the dog, I figured that might be the best place to go to break the news. She gladly agreed to hang out and we started towards the park. Just before we went back onto the trail, we saw a man that was somewhat of a local fixture. He walked around and cleaned up garbage from the side of the road. He took in bottles and cans for money, but because he was already picking up trash, he cleaned up whatever he came across. Abby was a little frightened of him. He was boned then and did some prison time. Normally dressed in well-worn but mostly clean clothing, he didn't seem like the type of person that we should talk with. I had no issue with him, and kind of respected him for cleaning up the area. He was just walking out of the woods with a nearly full clear trash bag. It took me a few seconds to remember his name. What are you girls up to? Taking a hike? He asked when he was close enough to speak with us. I could never place his accent. It was faint. Once I noticed it, I was super bothered at trying to figure it out. Just going for a short walk, Mr. Kendall. The high school students knew him because he would do everyone a favor and clean up after any big parties. Despite his appearance, he was an alright guy. I wondered what mistake in his past got him in prison in the first place. Be careful, alright? The woods feel bad today. Plus, they're in those, uh, what are they? The yipping thing. Coyotes? Yeah, you heard some. Come back out soon. Abby kept her distance when we spoke and I don't think he blamed her. A lot of people didn't get close to him. At least he was a good enough of a person to worry about us. In all my years of living in the area... I've never seen a coyote, but I knew that they lived in the woods. We'll be careful. Thank you, Mr. Kendall. Yes, thank you, Abby added, 
She didn't look as wary as before. I think she was always so freaked out by him because they had never actually talked to each other before. He gave us a worried look but continued on down the road looking for more cans. We should have listened to him and stayed out of the woods. As we walked, we spoke about the current drama within our friend group and our future plans. We had took this path a hundred times before so we didn't even pay attention to where we were headed. Don't you think we'll have enough money to move in with each other after school? Abby asked me when we brought up future goals. I wanted nothing more than to live with her, but I didn't think she would want anything to do with me after that night. I hope so. I've been saving whatever I've got for my job, I told her. I only had a part-time job and delivered newspapers before school. It wasn't much, but at least it was something to start with. Abby opened her mouth to speak when she heard a noise. Her hand flew into mine as we both looked around, trying to locate the source. It was a thumping sound, one that echoed through the trees. We stopped dead on the trail, wondering what the heck could have made a noise like that. Do you think a tree fell over? I offered. No, I've heard trees falling. It's more cracking than a big thud. Abby said, trying to keep her voice even. Another thud came and we both jumped. After a few more coming ever closer, I decided my confession could wait. Whatever that noise was, we did not want to find out. Um, time to go, I asked her, and she nodded her head and confirmed it. Still, with her hand in my own, I turned to walk back the way that we came, and thought that I went blind for a few seconds. Abby let out a yelp of surprise as we stood in the dark. It was later in the day, but it was impossible for the sun to set so quickly. As my eyes adjusted, I could see a full moon high above it, shining through the trees. It gave us enough light to see by. What in the world? I asked, voice low. Abby already had her phone out, trying to get some helper to check the time, but it refused to work at all. Might as well have been a brick it was that useful, and mine was acting up as well. As scary as the sun suddenly going away, we were still in a pretty good spot. I knew where on the trail we had stopped. If we just kept walking, we would be out of the woods in a few short minutes. This doesn't make any sense, she said, looking around the dark trail. I took her hand again to help her start moving. We couldn't afford to stop. I heard another thumping noise and it motivated us to move faster. No matter how far we walked, it felt like we were going nowhere. I was starting to get very scared but needed to keep it together for her. Those thumping noises kept echoing around us. As more time passed and we didn't get to the end of the trail, I found that I could gather up my courage enough to turn my head towards the noise. What I saw would remain in my nightmares forever. At first, I thought I saw someone hanging in the trees. I saw a pale figure dressed in white, their feet dangling. 
The thumping sound was the wind blowing the body against the tree. I felt sick and these sights made me freeze in my tracks. As the sky cleared of clouds and more moonlight came through the leaves, I could see more figures in the branches bumping against the bark. Abby let out a choked sob when she saw what I was staring at. But something was wrong. I didn't see any rope that the bodies were being hanged with, and I didn't see any heads. If there was no rope, then how were those bodies in the air like that? My skin crawled and I wanted to get the heck out of there. I tugged on Abby's hand for us to get moving again. I don't know if it was because we had moved, or if it was random, but the bodies started to turn towards us. I didn't want to stick around. I was nearly dragging Abby as we bolted down the path. As we ran, I heard those bodies following us. I was brave enough to look over my shoulder once to see them just floating in the treetops. They bounced off anything in their way, limp and mostly silent. I heard their clothing rustling through the air as they floated around. Abby was trying her best not to cry. I was in such a state of shock that I nearly gave in to sobs myself. We had just been walking on a safe trail and now, for whatever reason, a dozen floating headless bodies were coming after us. I didn't understand this. Nothing made sense. I just wanted to tell my best friend how I felt about her. I should have said it sooner so at least I wouldn't bring regrets to my grave. One of the bodies swooped down, its feet brushing against my hair. Abby let out a yelp from seeing it. I thought that it was a miracle when I saw someone on the trail down the way from us. We had both pushed through ragged breasts from running so hard to go and catch up to him, only to regret our choice very shortly after. He was tall and I assumed he wore a tan jacket before we got closer. The air shifted and brought a rotting yet flowery scent. The figure turned towards us and we both let out a scream. It was so thin that we could see every bone in its body. A sheet tied around its waist and flowers around its neck, but no head. That tall figure looked and smelled like a headless, rotting corpse. We both skidded to a stop to stay away from this new thing, the floating bodies getting closer. I held into Abby and helped her duck as more of them swooped down and narrowly missed us. The corpse walked towards us with long strides. In one hand, it held a long pole with a hook at the end. Using the pole, it swatted some of the bodies away. If I wasn't so scared, I would have laughed at the image. We started to back away as the new creature came towards us. Abby was snatched from my arms as the monster hooked her waist with the pole and dragged her forwards. I quickly grabbed her again to try and get her back to me, but this thing was far too strong. We cried, begging it to spare us, and I begged it to at least spare Abby. All the while, I heard more thumping sounds above us. When it unhooked the pole to grab her arm, I took that as my chance to swoop in, and I ran away with her. 
I felt the hook catch the back of my shirt, but it just ripped, letting us go free. Now we had a new monster following us, and with no plan, we ran. The forest changed around us to a place that we didn't recognize. I thought that I saw the sky getting lighter, and my heart leapt into my chest, hoping that we had found a way out. But suddenly, the woods shifted and I found us right in front of a drop-off. We stopped just in time. Sweat dripping from our faces and our lungs burning. There is a hill in front of us that was not a part of the area. The woods were far too small for a hill like this. And for how high up we were, we should be able to see some houses. But instead, just dark woods as far as we could see. Do you? Abby said, but too out of breath to keep speaking. I knew what she meant. She wanted to see if we had gotten away. I turned to answer her question and saw that the corpse easily followed us. Being so distracted by the drop-off, we didn't hear or see it. Extending the pole out in front of him, he hooked my ankle to pull my foot from underneath me. I fell back and off the hill, with Abby still holding on to me. We both tumbled down, expecting to die from the fall. I was scared but also angry that it was such a lame way to go out. I closed my eyes and held on to my friend as tightly as I could. The fall felt like years but the impact wasn't all that painful. It was as if we had simply tripped. Sitting up and utterly confused, we found ourselves back on the trail, the sun orange around us. I heard voices and was frightened at first, and then I saw a pair of officers were coming towards us. They quickly looked us over for any injuries, and we found out that we had only been missing for under an hour. They walked us out of the woods and I spotted Mr. Kendall waiting. He looked relieved that we were safe. He said that he had heard screaming, and since you two hadn't come out yet, he called us. One of the officers explained. We gave them a weak excuse of seeing a coyote and getting scared by it, so we screamed and ran off into the woods. After all, who would believe what we really saw? We thanked Mr. Kendall for calling for help, and he gave us a knowing look, but didn't outright say that he knew what was really in those woods. When we were finally able to walk home, Abby was still holding my arm, shaking up over the entire situation. When we go on our first date, it should be something really normal after this, she said in a tired voice. Yeah, we... Wait, you knew. I almost felt betrayed, but any negative feelings went away as she smiled up at me. You are always bad at hiding things from me, 
my sister and brother-in-law have been missing for over a month. Someone sent her journal to me, and now I'm terrified for her. Written by Certain Emergency 122. My sister's name is Cassandra Jones. She's 23 years old, has dark brown eyes, and is about 5 feet tall. She and my brother-in-law, Connor, have been missing for over a month now. The last time that I saw her was during our Thanksgiving family dinner, before they had moved to Larton, New Hampshire. Cassie and I used to talk almost every day. That changed when she had met Connor. I found her journal on my porch this morning, wrapped securely inside a manila envelope. At first, I thought somebody had sent it to me by mistake. But when I opened it, I recognized Cassie's handwriting. The journal itself is very odd. It looks really expensive. Made out of light gray leather and an upside down symbol carved on the cover. I'm not sure what these symbol is exactly. From one angle, it looks like a face with horns. From another, a clenched fist. I'm going to transcribe her journal entries below. I anticipate it becoming more difficult the further that I go, because her handwriting is barely legible after the first two entries. God, I hope my sister's okay. June 28th, 2021. I'm starting a journal because Connor said it would help me with my anxiety. I don't think my anxiety is that bad, but I don't mind doing this for him. I've actually never kept a journal before, so I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to write about. I live a very boring life. Connor is the breadwinner in our family. He's a police officer and grew up here in Larton. He seems happy to be back here. I used to work at my hometown's public library as a library assistant. Connor said I shouldn't bother finding a new job here because we're trying for a baby. The less stress, the better. We've been trying for the past few months, but so far there's nothing. According to our doctor, we're good to go. We just need to give it time. What else am I supposed to write about? Connor and I met nearly two years ago, right after I graduated from college. Honestly, I never thought someone like him would be interested in someone like me. He is 12 years older and knows so much about the world. He's brilliant, charming, and funny. Before we had met, I had never even ventured outside of my hometown. In fact, our move to Larton was my first time visiting the East Coast. Sometimes, I can hardly believe that I'm actually here. Anyways, I should get started on making dinner. I'll write more later. July 1st, 2021 I had the strangest dream last night. Connor says it's because I'm getting used to living somewhere new. In my dream, I woke up and he wasn't in the bedroom with me. I knew somehow that something was wrong and that we were in danger from something. I got up and searched room after room for him. As I went through the living room, I thought that I heard his voice outside. You know how there's no real logic to anything in dreams. One minute, I stood in our living room, lifting one cushion after another as if I expected to see Connor hiding behind them. The next minute, I was outside in the middle of a clearing. A full moon rolled the sky and I saw Connor sitting on the ground, surrounded by a circle of tall candles. It was so cold. 
The flames of the candles danced and wavered in the wind, but didn't go out. At first, Connor didn't see me. He chanted words from another language, all his concentration on the seemingly empty patch of darkness in front of him. It almost sounded like Latin. I caught a few words. Corpus sacrificium vivis. Yet when I walked towards him, he looked up at me and frowned. And then the dream dissolved. I woke up covered in sweat and on the verge of throwing up. I don't know why I was so frightened. It wasn't even a very scary dream. Like Connor says, it must just be the nerves from our move. July 11th, 2021. The woman with long black hair is standing in our bedroom. She's coming for me. Water cascades down her rotting face. July 12th, 2021. I slept in late today and had to spend the whole afternoon cleaning. Connor is very particular about his space. The kitchen chairs have to be aligned just so. The entryway swept daily, and all the dishes are scrubbed clean before he's home. He says that dirty dishes stacked in the sink are an eyesore. So I didn't notice last night's odd entry until now. I have no memory whatsoever of writing it, but who else could have? I dug my pen into the paper with such great force that it tore to pieces in some places. If I run my fingers over it, I can feel the imprints of the words on the pages beneath. I must have sleepwalked. That's the only possible explanation. I've never done so before, but as they say, there's a first time for everything. No wonder I'm exhausted. Who was the woman that I saw? No, 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 don't go down that rabbit hole. Leave it alone, Cassie. It was just a bad dream. July 16th, 2021. I don't feel well. I think I'm coming down with something. I don't know how that's possible because it kind of looks perfectly healthy. And I haven't gone outside at all in the past week. Connor and I argued today because I asked him if I could volunteer at the Larton Public Library. He told me that I needed to focus on getting our household ready for our new baby. He pointed out that I haven't even decorated the nursery yet. Honestly, I've been putting it off on purpose. It's silly, but the yellow wallpaper in the nursery seems to mock me. That and the empty crib. It's a perpetual reminder that I'm failing at the most basic task of womanhood. I'm starting to dread going inside there. You do your job. I do mine, Connor said. I don't want you getting distracted. And then he smiled at me, that crescent moon smile of his. His lips are very thin, and sometimes his wide smile unsettles me. What Connor doesn't understand is that I miss having friends nearby. Even though I talk to them on the phone, it's not the same. July 21st, 2021. She keeps moving closer. At first she stood in the doorway. Now she's at the foot of the bed. What's going to happen if she reaches me? July 29th, 2021. Connor hit me today. I'm still in shock. Even though I know he has a bad temper, I never once thought that he would hurt me. I've been holed up in the bedroom since it happened, sobbing into my pillow like a pathetic idiot. I wonder if he ever hit his ex-fiancee. She died years ago before Connor and I met and he never talks about her.
I borrowed his phone once and looked her up on Facebook while he slept. Mary Williams. She was beautiful. Warm brown eyes, long curly hair. Red lips stretched into a gentle smile. I thought about calling my parents or even my older sister Charlotte to talk about what had happened. I can't. I'm too ashamed. My entire family told me from the start that Connor is too controlling. They said that I deserve better. At the time I told them all because they didn't understand our relationship. I thought everyone was overreacting. Joke's on me. Maybe I deserve this. July 30th, 2021. Connor never came to bed last night. After he left for work, I ventured into the kitchen and saw the bouquet of roses on our kitchen table. He wrote a very sweet, apologetic note and said that he was so sorry for losing his temper. It was inexcusable. He said that I was the most precious, beautiful thing in his life right now. As I read that note, I remembered how much he loved me. He just wants what's best for me, and I'm so lucky to have him. I know how hard he works to make sure that I can stay home. Meanwhile, how do I repay him? By being an overly sensitive, clingy, anxious mess. For God's sake, I've hardly even touched the nursery lately. I overreacted last night. I'm glad now that I didn't call my family members like I wanted to. Connor is right. It would be silly to throw away our relationship over a one-time incident. I love him so much. August 9th, 2021 I watched her lean over me. I tried to get up and run, but I couldn't move. I couldn't move. She placed her hands on me and her fingernails dug into my face. August 10th, 2021 I woke up this morning and felt a hard lump on the back of my neck. I panicked. My first thought was that I had thyroid cancer, just like everyone else on my dad's side of the family. I tried to use my compact mirror to see what the bump looked like, but the angle was too awkward. And then I tried to take pictures of it with my phone, but all the shots came out too blurry for me to see it clearly. I'm scribbling this as I sit at the kitchen table. I can't concentrate on anything. I'll ask Connor to look at it after we've eaten dinner. Connor said that he didn't see anything. I think I'm going insane. I can feel the bump throbbing. It doesn't hurt exactly, I'm just very aware of it. It almost seems to be getting bigger. August 12th, 2021 I can barely bear to write about what happened today. On my first try, my hand shook so hard that I ripped off the previous page because it was an illegible mess. I need to talk to someone and since I can't talk to my family or friends, I'm writing it down here. It's funny that I started out so skeptical of journaling. Now this journal is a lifeline. It's official. I've gone insane. When I went into the bathroom this morning... I saw that bump on my neck had in fact grown larger. So, for some idiotic reason, I decided it would be a good idea to press down on it. It bursted open in a shower of red and yellow fluid. The red and yellow gushed down my back, soaking my shirt through in a matter of seconds. I screamed and instantly ran for the shower, spraying cold water all over my face and the bathroom floor. I don't know how long I stayed in there, 
trying desperately not to think about what had just happened. But I had to think about it. I needed to see what the back of my neck had become. My dread mounted as images of missing chunks of flash flashed through my mind. Slowly, I walked over to the bathroom mirror and turned around. My back nearly pressed against the mirror and my neck craned over my shoulder. I saw teeth, and possibly white, gleaming teeth, set into pink gums and enclosed by red lips. The teeth were so perfect, so evenly shaped, that they didn't seem real. My hands hovered over it. I wanted to touch it, but I was too scared of what I would find. Would I feel rubbery lips under my hands, or only smooth skin? The longer I stared at the mouth, the more disturbed I felt. I realized that I recognized this mouth. It belongs to the woman from my nightmares. And as my terror grew to a fever pitch, the lips moved and writhed in the mirror. They shaped silent words. Her teeth clicked and clacked, snapping at my reflection. I ran from the bathroom screaming, wanting more than anything to be back home, across the country and away from this thing. Now I'm sitting here in the bedroom, unable to concentrate on anything but writing. God, I hope that this was all just a vivid hallucination. But why does it feel so real? What's happening to me? I don't know if I should call Connor. I need someone to hold me, to tell me whether or not they can see it too. I'm hesitating because I don't want to make him mad again. Surely he'll understand once I explain everything to him. I'm calling him. He'll know what to do. August 14th, 2021. We visited Dr. Gus Subi, a psychiatrist that Connor knows. He prescribed me clozapine and risperidone, and we picked up the medications today. Thank God I feel so much better. Obviously, Connor confirmed that there's nothing on my neck. He's so sweet and understanding. He even kissed it, right where the mouth had been. I'm an idiot. Why do I always make such a big deal out of nothing? Earlier, I looked at my reflection. For a second, I thought I saw two additional bumps on the back of my neck, centered over the mouth. I blinked and they were gone. I'm fine, I'm okay. Like Connor said, it was just a hallucination. August 17th, 2021. The mouth on my neck is still there. The additional bumps on my neck are eyes. They burst open last night and the red and yellow soaked my pillow filled my mouth. Two blinking eyes with delicate black eyelashes. I can see long black hair drifting in the air beside my face. August 18th, 2021. I know for sure that I sleepwalk now because I found myself waking up in the kitchen, holding a butcher knife to my own throat. It had actually drawn blood. When I became aware of what I was doing, I was so surprised that I dropped the knife and it fell blade over hilt, nearly impaling my left foot. Jesus. I had hoped that the nightmares were over, but I guess not. I washed the knife and mopped up the mess. I'm glad that Connor wasn't here to see this. It's how strange that I can't even remember the nightmare, though I'm sort of grateful too. It must have been awful. I reread the handful of odd nighttime journal entries, the ones that I wrote while sleepwalking. They sound like the ravings of a madwoman. It's a good thing no one else is reading this, 
especially not Connor. August 20th, 2021. Some good news at last. I took a pregnancy test today and it was positive. I went through two more sticks, just to be sure, and every single one of them came back with two lines. Finally, finally, finally I'm having a baby. Connor's baby. I called him to let him know and we both started crying. He sounded so happy. We're both happy that our baby will be a girl. If I had any doubts about moving here, they're gone. Now I guess it's finally time to decorate the nursery. The first thing I'm going to do is rip down all that disgusting wallpaper. August 29th, 2021. Over the past week, I've been steadily getting weaker. I don't know why. I feel exhausted all the time and I can't move except in short bursts that leave me dizzy. Like I'm close to passing out. I can barely hold this pen. I wonder if it's the side effect of the medications that I'm taking. I hope the baby's okay. Tomorrow, we'll visit an obstetrician Connor knows. Connor tells me that I need to be careful and stay in bed. He doesn't want me to hurt myself for the baby accidentally. Good thing I didn't tell him about the knife incident. That would have freaked him out even more. How funny it is, is that all I can do is journal and watch TV. Gone are the days when I spent all my time scrubbing, washing, and cleaning. Connor moved the TV from the living room into our bedroom so that I could have some way to pass the time. I thought he would be angry at me for lazying around all day. Instead, he's been so kind, so compassionate, and so charming. It makes me glad all over again that I chose him as my partner. I hope I get better soon. I'm so eager for our baby to arrive. September 1st, 2021. I can feel her taking over my body. I'm losing sensation in my arms, my legs, my hands, and feet. She's testing my body out, trying to see how much further she can move every day. Connor knows. He looks at her in a way that he never looked at me. He never loved me. I don't have much time left. There are more bumps all along my body. All of them pulsating and nearly bursting. I don't know how to fight back or how to stop this. All I have left is this journal. I know they'll destroy it if they can, so I'll hide it. Somewhere safe. If I'm still here tomorrow, still me. I'll write another entry then. I hope someone finds this. Please help me. That's the very last entry. The rest of the pages in the journal are blank. As soon as I had finished transcribing it all, I contacted the New Hampshire State Police and showed them the journal entries, but they weren't interested. They told me that somebody was probably playing a prank on me and that I should sit tight. They said they would let me know if they found any new leads on my sister's disappearance. I know this sounds like a conspiracy theory, maybe paranoia is catching, but I suspect that the police officers in Larton are in on this. They never seemed interested in finding my sister and her husband. And more to the point, Connor is one of them. Who knows how many missing wives or girlfriends they all have. So I decided to write this post because I know that a lot of other folks on here have had strange and unimaginable experiences. While I desperately hope that what my sister described wasn't real. If it was, then I need any advice or guidance that you can provide. Because I want to find her. And because last night when I was brushing my teeth before going to bed, 
I thought I saw something reflected in the bathroom mirror. Something that makes me wonder if Cassie was telling the truth in her journal entries. When I turned around to look at it, it had disappeared. But I know what I saw. A long black hair out of the corner of my eye. We ran into a banshee while exploring an abandoned farm. Written by Drekanox. I am an urban explorer along with a group of my friends, whose names I'll be changing for the purpose of the story. As you can imagine, with the pandemic and lockdowns, we haven't gotten to do much during the past year. But after much waiting, finally, the time came when we could get going once again. So, one day, I found myself walking at the crack of dawn to the local train station. It was there that I met up with my friend, George. George was the oldest out of the four of us, and he also acted that way. He gave off an older brother kind of air of protectiveness, especially around me. He was trying to say something. I could tell that as much, but I couldn't figure out what it was. I can't tell what you're saying with your mask still on, I told him. Then technically, we were all still required to wear masks, but people were rather lax with this rule now and George smiled as he lowered his. I just wanted to say hi. It's been a while, George said. He then paused. How did your meeting with the doctor go? I shrugged. Nothing can be done, apparently. I met with another specialist last week, and he said the same thing. Oh, I'm sorry that it turned out like that, George said with a morose expression that lit up as he saw someone approaching behind me. I turned around to see Jack. If George was the responsible older brother, then Jack was the mischievous younger one. He had been attempting to sneak up on me, but now that he had been caught... He was trying to play it off and act normal. It wasn't working. Jack moved in front so I could see the both of them together. A year later and you're still up to the same old tricks, George said with a frown. Hey, she can take a joke, can't she? Jack said with a sheepish grin. You know with all she's going through, do you really need to do something like that? George asked. George was two inches taller than Jack. His black hair had streaks of white in it, a testament to how many more years of experience he had had than the rest of us. All of it resulted in a very stern face, even when he wasn't trying to be serious. Jack's face was a lot more jovial, but it withered under George's gaze. Uh, sorry about that, Jack said, apologizing to me. Oh, it's no big deal, I told him. 
I kind of preferred if he kept acting the same way around me as he did before her. So, is Mary going to be late as usual? Mary was the other girl in our group. She tended to arrive late, as she was either sleeping in or putting on her makeup. She was mostly into exploring, because she liked uploading pictures to her Instagram account and blogging about them after. I found her to be pretty easy to get along with, even though she tended to be a bit of a drama queen sometimes. Jack took the time to smoke a cigarette, which annoyed the two of us. Sorry, Jack explained. He had quit seven years ago. I got a bit stressed out with everything, and before I knew it, I started smoking again. Yeah, yeah, real stupid, I know, but I've been trying to quit. It's been hard, though. Mary arrived 15 minutes later, barely in time for us to catch the train. She had a strawberry blonde hair and was quite pretty, explaining her Instagram popularity. She was dressed a bit lavishly for what we were doing, probably hoping to look good in the pictures that she would take, but it was nothing too impractical for what we were doing. She made some excuse about traffic, but we all knew there really wasn't anything, so we all rolled our eyes when she wasn't looking. The train ride was really fun. While I tried to stay in touch with everyone even during the pandemic by going online, it just wasn't the same as being in person, especially given how poor the video quality can be on Zoom. It lasted a whole three hours. Mary fell asleep on the way, and Jack tried his scribbling on her face with a permanent marker. He tried in the case that Mary woke up and sneezed all over him, which definitely made everyone else laugh like crazy as Jack freaked out. In case you're wondering, Mary wasn't sick or anything. It was just her allergies acting up. We got off, but there was an hour-long hike ahead of us after this. We could have rented a car or a taxi, but George wanted to stretch his legs and, honestly, I couldn't blame him, given how he must have felt all cooped up after all this time. Mary was a bit less keen to walk the whole way, but readily agreed when she realized that she could take a bunch of pictures of the surrounding countryside, which would have been a lot harder to do while riding in a vehicle. George took a look at the sun and then said, Let's try to wrap this all up before sunset. He was probably saying so for my sake, but I reassured him that I had a flashlight even if it got dark. The place that we were going to was an old abandoned farmhouse. Part of it had collapsed, but Jack told us that it was safe. That honestly wasn't much of a reassurance, and neither was the story that Jack told us about the place. So, yeah. The story goes that a family that lived here all died mysteriously one day, he said. And then a few years later, 
the family who bought it afterward also died all within a week of each other. Then, there is this story of two men who went missing. Knock it off, Jack, George said. Jack kind of had this habit of telling us that nearly every single place we explored was haunted, usually just to freak Mary out. But he swore that this time that it was real, and that he wasn't making any of it up. We spent some time wandering around the farm, and I have to say that it was quite beautiful. With our outdoor exploring done, and the sun rapidly descending, we then decided to actually go inside. There was nothing overtly creepy about the place, I guess aside from what our minds invented. As it began to get dark, Mary made sure to get as many selfies as she thought that she would need. George made sure that we didn't wander anywhere that could have been dangerous, as always, while Jack goofed off just like he usually did. I mostly spent my time watching the others. I was really just happy that we could hang around like this, just like old times. Well, I think it's time to get going then, George said. We could be running out of daylight any minute now. We turned to leave, but as we did, I saw Jack fall to the floor out of the corner of my eye. I turned towards him and saw that he was saying something as he writhed on the ground. Alright Jack, this isn't funny, George said. However, I didn't think that Jack was faking. I knelt down by him and realized that he was saying, The song... It was then that the same thing happened to Mary. She fell to the floor and began writhing almost as if she was having a seizure. She kept saying something, but it was difficult to make out. All I could understand was the song over and over again. It was then that I saw it, right there by the entrance was a pale figure. I thought that it was a woman based on the jet black hair that fell to her waist. Her hair covered most of her face and she was dressed in a milk white robe. George turned my head so I was looking at him instead of her and said, Banshee. A banshee. The spirit of a woman whose wailing was an omen of death. What, what do we do? I asked. We need to get out. George said as he went to help Jacob. I did the same with Mary. And George was looking for an alternate exit. With his eye finding a nearby window. There, he said. However, the moment that he said so. The figure appeared right there in front of the window to block our escape. I could feel the floorboards vibrating underneath my feet due to what was going on. Now even George fell to the ground, crying and weeping. To see him, who was always the strongest and most responsible of us, 
In a state like this, it nearly made me panic. But something he said, it gave me strength. You're the only one of us who can stand up to that thing. I looked at the banshee. I had no idea how to get rid of one. But I had heard that in general, evil entities and especially the undead hated fire. So I took out Jack's lighter and lit a fallen piece of wood, gripping it in my hand as I advanced towards the ethereal creature. It had a sunken, rotting face, but I could still make out that it was surprised by the fact that I was standing and not rolling on the floor like my friends. In response to this, her mouth moved more rapidly, and the frequency at which the floorboards under me were vibrating also increased. I couldn't let that stop me though. I gripped the piece of burning wood and thrust it at her, igniting a part of her hair. She caught fire as if she had been bathed in kerosene beforehand and was immediately enveloped in flames. She disappeared after that, but not before ripping out a part of the wall. I saw the roof cave in over me, and then there was blackness. I came to sometime later with my head throbbing. It was nighttime now, and the lights of an ambulance in the distance told me that some people had come to rescue us. Someone was standing above me, but I could only faintly make out their silhouette. He or she was saying something that I couldn't make out. Sorry, can you please turn on a light? I told the person. It's too dark to tell what you're saying. I realized what I was saying must have sounded insane, and so I clarified what I said. I had an accident a few years ago. I'm completely deaf in both ears. I'm good at reading lips though. Thankfully, everyone else survived with nothing more than a few minor injuries. The official story was that the place caved in because it was so old and none of us brought up what we had seen to the authorities. None of us would have believed them. I found out later that the other members of my group began seeing images of death the moment that they heard the song, not only of themselves but of close family members and friends. This completely overwhelmed them and they were unable to do anything but listen to it. Not only that, but listening to these songs was physically painful. Mary described it like having a migraine, but a thousand times worse. Something she would be familiar with given that she had suffered from them earlier in her life. If they had listened to it for any longer, they all probably would have had something like an aneurysm and died. A banshee's wail is usually said to be an omen of death but I think the one that we ran into was far more malevolent. It didn't just want to foretell our deaths, it wanted to trap us and kill us right there and then. I don't know if by burning it, I destroyed it, and that means my friends are completely safe, but they seem to be perfectly fine for now, so I certainly hope. Don't take my word for it though. I don't know if that will destroy a banshee if you ever happen to run into one. 
My hearing's still the same as always, but I'm less upset about that now. After all, if it weren't for that, none of us would have gotten out of there alive. But I would certainly advise all of you to be careful, especially while exploring abandoned areas. Avoid those cheap VR headsets they sell at the mall. Written by Weird Bryce Guy. My friend invited me over to try out a new horror VR game that he had bought from some vendor at the mall. Not having anything better to do, and loving all things horror, I agreed to stop by and arrived with snacks in hand, moderately hyped. I wasn't expecting anything incredible. It was, after all, something he had bought from some tacky, middle-of-the-wing vendor, probably not far from a sunglasses stalled in cell phone case stand. But I had never played a VR game before, and hadn't spent any real time with my friend in a while, since online gaming has always been easier for us, due to our often clashing work schedules. The game itself, a bundle that included two cheap helmet-like headsets preloaded with the software, it was fairly straightforward. Two players could play at once, co-op or competitively, on any one of three maps. If co-op play was selected, you would have to defend a location from increasing the stronger waves of hellish creatures, ghouls, demons, various undead, for 10 minutes. Competitive play put one person as a sort of general of the Infernal Legions, while the other received increased health, fortifications, and ammo. Roles were switched intermittently so that each player was given an opportunity to experience both sides of the dynamic. Simple stuff. Knowing that I would probably win regardless of which position I was put in, my friend chose a co-op play, and we spent about two hours playing game after game, surviving more often than not, due to the less-than-intelligent enemy AI. They were hell-bent on killing us, but went about it in the most straightforward and predictable ways. It quickly became obvious that they had been programmed with only the simplest of siege tactics. The game probably only had one developer. Once, my friend was in the process of opening a broad wooden gate for us two to move on to the next section of the map. When it prompted me to assist him, his character being unable to open the massive structure himself. Since I hadn't yet performed a contextual command, it took me a moment to figure out what to do. While the demonically multifaceted horde closed in on us, I performed a series of actions, none of which were the necessary motions to complete the joint prompt. I'm sure if the undead and hellspawn had had the capacity for thought, they would have found my momentary incompetence hilarious. Overall, it was a simple game, rudimentary in both game design and combat, but we nonetheless had a fun time. Agreed that, despite its shortcomings, it was well worth the $50 my friend had spent. And when we went to end the night and log out, it asked if we would like to save our data and upload it to the game's online servers so that we could download it on any subsequent releases, assuring us that we would receive bonuses for having played what we then learned was only a beta release. We agreed and my friend followed the instructions, 
which involved an interactive minigame of sorts while I went to the bathroom. Returning, I found him still engaged in the activity and after waiting a moment, I asked him what was taking so long. A few more moments of silence passed, and then he finally removed the helmet, blinking as if he had just woken up. I asked if he was alright and he nodded, then delicately placed his headset onto his entertainment stand, and I went over, grabbed mine, and did the same. Still blinking, he mumbled out that his eyes were just fried from having spent hours staring into the headset, and I realized then that I felt the same. Even though I hadn't really felt compelled to blink them back into operation, or relieve any ocular stresses or anything like that. Ready to leave and sensing any tiredness beyond eye exhaustion in him, I thanked him for the good time and headed out the door. He belatedly, almost absent-mindedly waved to me, and continued to stand in his living room where we had been playing. I shut the door behind me, and after getting into my car, texted him to get some rest. He didn't respond until I had made it halfway home, and this was only a thumbs up. I sent one back, and put the weird vibe that I had gotten out of my mind, thinking that perhaps he hadn't actually had much fun in the game, and was merely coming to regret the purchase. The next day, I texted him again, both to see how he was doing and to ask if he would mind coming over and helping me put together a rather large bookcase that was going to go along nearly the entire length of a wall in my bedroom. He's a big guy and pretty handy with tools. He responded faster this time, saying that he could do it in the afternoon. I texted him at around 10am, and I responded with the appropriate gratitude. He arrived a few minutes after noon, and after a brief overview of the plan, we went to work. He seemed to find that, even took charge of the setup halfway through when it became obvious that I was well out of my element. I had never installed anything in my home before. A few hours later, the job was done, and we relaxed on my couch in the living room. I ordered a pizza, and after chatting a while about all the books I planned to fill the shelves with, my collection only spanned half the thing. I brought up the VR game, wondering if his mood regarding it had changed. At the mention of the game, he seemed to stiffen, and the atmosphere of the room shifted almost imperceptibly. Not understanding why it had been a sensitive topic for him, I pushed on, and I right asked him whether or not he actually had had a good time. He stood up and emphatically shook his head, saying, yeah, man, I had a good time. It was a good game, just disorienting, you know. I sensed a shimmering hostility in him, so I backed off of the topic, and instead asked if he wanted something to drink. He kept standing for another moment as if to settle himself down, and then returned to his seat and said he would like a soda if I had any. I told him that there was a can of Coke in the fridge, and he said that would be fine. I wanted some tea, so I went into the kitchen and put the kettle on, telling him that I would be back in a bit and to listen for the pizza. He nodded and leaned back into the couch, seemingly relaxed again. Trying to take my mind off of his weird reaction, I spent the next few minutes reminiscing on the previous night, while the kettle slowly came to a boil. Absent-mindedly, I retrieved a sachet of hibiscus tea from the cabinet and I placed it in my favorite cup. Just as I had started to pour the water into my cup, 
I heard a knock on the door and shouted for my friend to grab the pizza. I heard him rise from the couch and cross the living room, and then the door opening and the pizza guy greeting him. Everything seemed fine until I heard the following exchange. Uh, sir? Yes? Here's your pizza, sir. Yes, I'll take it. Yeah, um, here you go. You can take it. Yes. Sir, are you going to take it or not? Sliding the kettle off the burner, I went into the living room and saw my friend standing still at the door, with a confused-looking pizza guy beyond him. The pizza box, still in his hand, extended toward my friend. I called out to him, telling him to take the box, and he again said, Yes, but remained completely still. Seeing how angry the pizza guy was becoming, I went over to my friend, nudged him aside, and took the pizza apologizing to the now angry delivery man as I did so. I pulled out five bucks from my pocket and handed it to him, even though I had already tipped online. Shutting the door behind me, I asked my friend what the heck was wrong with him, and he only responded by taking the pizza out of my hands and walking to the couch. Sitting down, he opened the box, took a slice and began eating, as if he hadn't just caused the scene. Instinct. Some prehistoric impulse urged me to drop the matter, but the more intellectual elements of my brain demanded an explanation. I walked over and closed the pizza box, cutting off his access to a second slice. He stared at the box for a moment, and then looked up to me and asked, in a perfectly eerily calm voice, What's up? The oddly measured query unnerved me, and as I stepped away, feeling at once uncomfortable and vaguely yet deeply fearful. My fear was then compounded when, as if anticipating my request for him to leave, my friend stood and said, Hey, I brought the game with me. How about I stay a while and we play a few rounds? Something in the casual suggestion caused the firing of all the animal alarms in my brain. My friend took a step toward me and my instincts practically screamed at me to leave the apartment, to forsake my home in order to save my life. But I stubbornly ignored these impulses, deeming them irrational and cowardly. Instead, I said that I was tired and asked if we could play another day. His reaction was shocking, terrifyingly quick. In a swift and seamless motion, he snatched up one of the cushions from my couch and hurled it at me. The soft yet large square struck me in the face, and while it wasn't injurious, it did disorient me, and in these subsequent seconds of confusion, my friend had crossed the room and seized me by the throat with his powerful hands. Before I could even attempt to pry them away, he kneed me in the groin and I went limp, held aloft solely by his vice-strong grip around my throat. Unsatisfied with my debilitation, he delivered another knee, this one striking my abdomen, while the first blow had elicited an eye-opening, fiery pain. The second blow served to immediately ventilate my body. My breath left me, and the pain resonated deeply in my core, causing my deflated body to spasm and tremble. I was then dropped onto the carpet and left to breathlessly twitch in agony. My friend, having left at some point in my half-conscious writhing, returned a few minutes later holding a knife. One of these steak knives from the set that he'd bought me for Christmas two years ago. 
He glanced around a moment, as if waiting for a further direction, or perhaps to savor the moment, and then he plunged the knife into my stomach. Six years ago, I fell out of a tree that I had been climbing to impress a girl. I didn't break anything, but I was unfortunate enough to land atop the sole stone beneath the tree. Ribs first. That impact knocked me out almost instantly. But to this day, I can still remember the split second of unrelatable, body-spanning pain as the rock in my ribs had collided. That pain was nothing compared to the soul-shaking, mind-clearing sensation of the knife entering my gut and effortlessly parting my viscera. Every subsequent convulsive spasm brought a ton of pain to my stomach, a maddening, unfurling blossom of fire which spread outward to arrest my limbs and leave me virtually paralyzed in agony. Thankfully, mercifully, my friend left the knife in my gut. Had he dislodged it, I probably would have gone into complete shock and died shortly after, either from the tissue damage wrought by the blade or blood loss. The visual of the knife embedded in my abdomen kept me gravely anchored to awareness, assisted of course by the ever-mounting pain of its abdominal occupancy. I don't doubt that its presence also prevented me from dying of blood loss, which I'm sure wouldn't have been pleasant. Standing upright, my friend then went to the couch and, reaching behind it, retrieved his book bag. Unzipping the topmost flap, he withdrew one of the VR headsets, and despite the knife in my stomach, I screamed out, connecting the dots and understanding at last why my friend was behaving so weirdly, so evilly. Somehow, his mind had been warped or maybe even replaced by the VR headset, a plot out of some cheap science fiction novel, but dreadfully, nightmarishly real. He turns on the headset, performs a series of minute calibrations, and then turns around, ready to plant it on my head, and subject me to the same brain alteration or replacement he had been unwittingly subjected to. Regaining some of my strength at the revelation of my imminent demise, or at least a psychological usurping, I retreated backwards, ignoring the burning of my elbows by the cheap carpet. My friend followed, ignorant of all else beyond the goal of conscripting me into his VR-imprisoned army. Somehow, I managed to make my way to the kitchen, the cold and smooth tile a welcome relief from the rough carpet. My friend lumbered after me, not hurrying but not slowing either, a cold, pursuing automation. When my back suddenly bumps against the stove, I freeze, thinking that I've met my end. But then, between the worryingly discordant beats of my heart, I heard the steady hiss of the teapot on the stove above me. Cursing all the while, the pain in my stomach having become by this point a pulsing hot sensation, I reached up, and just before my friend could slap the headset under my scalp, I seized my half-filled cup from the counter and I tossed it toward him, splashing him in the face and chest with the searing liquid. Thinking that the cup was enough, I refrained from grabbing the kettle itself, leaving it to softly sputter out its steam. But he didn't react. Well, he did, but not in the way that you would expect. He flinched, as much as someone would when an object is suddenly introduced into their line of sight. But beyond that, the scalding water was of no consequence to him, 
Even as his flesh reddened and rippled from the heat, he continued his endeavor to affix the headset to my scalp. I was initially appalled at my own action and then terrified by his lack of reaction to it. I fell over and the headset slapped uselessly against the stove. I landed on my side, jostling the knife and eliciting a new magnitude of bodily pain. Before I could get up to run or straightly face my end, I felt something shift in my pocket, and after jamming my hand into it, I found my phone. Had I not been inches away from my robotically mannered friend, I might have called the police. Instead, I did what I felt was the most sensible thing, given the dire circumstances. It took me maybe two seconds to open my router's companion app and force it to reset. Just as I saw the icon for the device go offline, I felt the pressure of the bulky headset on my scalp, the visor slide over my face and my vision go black. I was met with the game's main menu, albeit presented differently from when I had first experienced it. The backdrop, league upon league of ravenous, intermingled, demonian, and undead forms, was now grayed. The once glistening crimson flesh of the assembled horror is now only an inky, undulating smear of black. The game's title flashed, and beneath it was a notification that read, Cannot connect to server. Please check internet connection. Two yellow triangular warning signs punctuated the message on each side. After a few moments of this, I realized with immense relief that my half-cocked plan had worked. I had stopped my digitally possessed friend from downloading something into my brain. Ignorant to what I had done, my friend's computer-controlled body stood over me, presumably awaiting the mental emergence of another of its kind. Figuring that my would-be possessor probably wouldn't care about the knife in my stomach, I tried to rise nonchalantly, but only managed to raise myself a few inches before flopping back to the ground. It took all of my effort not to cry out, although I did let loose a soft exhalation. Unsuspecting of my self-saving subterfuge, my friend bent down and gripped me by my shoulders with no regard for my agony and hoisted me onto my feet. Although the visor is on my face, I could still see his presence beyond me, loitering only inches away. Assuming he had regarded my inability to rise as some sort of a structural issue with my body, I took a moment to settle my nerves, stealing them against my excruciating impalement. But the pain was beyond control, and against my will I teetered backwards, colliding with the stove. My elbow bumped against something hot, and a memory flashed into my mind. The tea kettle that I had left alone to simmer. Not bothering to remove the headset, knowing that in doing so, I would completely blow my cover. I reached behind me, miraculously found the kettle's handle, and swung it before me with what was left of my waning strength. Hot droplets of water seared my exposed chin, arms, and neck but these minor burns were nothing compared to the dousing that my friend received. I heard the wet splash as near boiling water splattered his face. Fearing the attack would be received with the same indifference as before, I swung the kettle again, this time meaning to make physical contact with the object itself. But my friend must have stepped back, because the steel container soared uselessly through the air. 
I was brought forward by the momentum of the swing and the motion brought a deeper quake of pain to my stomach. I doubled over and would have fallen out of my face if I hadn't thrown out my hands at the last moment. My palms landed in a puddle of hot water, but the resultant pain was nothing compared to that which arose in my punctured gut from the exertion. I rolled over onto my side, lessening the pain by a barely perceptible degree and weakly removed the headset from my scalp. My friend stood a few feet away, drenched with hot water, but looking as if he had only been caught in the light rain. Despite the steam emanating from his face and shoulders, he looked fine, unharmed and unfazed. His eyes were locked onto me, and I could tell in those two green circles that he meant to kill me. Then, that I was about to die in some horrific way at the hands of someone that I had known, trusted, and loved for years. But then, as if suddenly received new instructions, or ideas from some unseen supervisor, my friend turned around and exited the kitchen. A second later, I heard the front door open and close. For some reason, he had left me, beaten and with a knife in my stomach, but alive. I called the police and was taken to the hospital, where I had a successfully life-saving surgery. I spent nearly a week there before being discharged. I told the police most of the truth that my friend had in a moment of seemingly random psychosis attacked me. I didn't mention the VR headset, or his apparent intention of having my consciousness supplanted by some digital demon. I did visit the mall and look for the vendor from which he had bought the headset, but I found nothing. None of the other vendors or the mall staff were able to give me any worthwhile information, although they did recall the vendor's ephemeral existence at least. It's an unsatisfying ending to a terrible event, but I'm just glad to be alive. I don't know where my friend is or why at the very last moment I was spared of his fury, but I hope despite what's happened, that he's alright. I bought two Disney animatronics for my haunted attraction, The Pirate is the Safe One, written by Kyle Harrison. When I first spotted the listing on Facebook Marketplace, I was sure that it was a scam. Two used animatronics dismantled, bundled together for sale, discounted, the header read. They were a new seller with what looked like a fake account that had been quickly set up. It was actually the picture that tipped me off. They were from Disney Attractions. One appeared to be an angled shot of a robot pirate from the Caribbean ride, and the other was what looked like an older model of one of the presidents from their infamous Liberty Square attraction. I told myself that it was too good to be true, but I went ahead and shot the seller a message anyway to let them know that I was interested in buying. The reply came quickly. Hello, hey, thank you for your interest. These items will be auctioned next Monday at the storage unit. Please submit info for your spot at the event. John. That immediately made me reconsider. I didn't really have time to waste wandering all the way downtown for a chance at purchasing these things. And I knew that an auction like this could probably take hours. Not to mention shipping handling and all the other hidden fees that they could easily attach. 
and I put in my information, but I wasn't expecting much more to come of it. I was just about to close my laptop and consider the whole thing a lost cause when the seller DM'd me again. Hey, sorry about that automated message. It's meant to weed out the wishy-washy wannabes. So, you think you want these hunks of junks? I was relieved to be talking to a real person, but still wary, especially the way that they talked. Do they have all the parts, including audio recordings? I typed back. Yep, everything is all here. Just nobody really interested in them. Truth be told, they were going to the auction, but I figured it would be easier to sell them outright. To avoid the hassle of having to haul them back here if they don't. Made sense. I was sure the things probably weighed about a hundred pounds each. Possibly a little bit more. And since they weren't put together, that just meant extra trips. The auction is Friday. Could I come look at them tomorrow and decide? I asked. That would be perfect. John gave me a few more details, like how to find the storage unit, the passcode to get in, and recommended I bring a small van to haul them in. And then he took the listing off of Facebook, promising that he wouldn't sell them to anyone else. I probably won't be there when you come by to check them out, by the way. Is that okay? I hesitated, thinking maybe this was a scam to try and make me look like I would be trespassing or something. The property has cameras, so I know you won't break anything. I can verify everything financially through PayPal, too, if you make a decision. He added. He drove a hard bargain, so I caved. The storage unit itself was a sore thumb off the main highway. Probably owned and operated by a single person by the looks of it. I punched in the code that John had given me and the old rickety gate slowly slid open, whining as it did. Most of the units looked like they were either abandoned or destroyed, further worrying me that maybe what I was going to buy wasn't as spectacular as I had hoped, and this whole afternoon had indeed been a waste. The unit in question was wedged on the second aisle right next to a pothole, with the lock hanging off at halfway. I took a breath and lifted it up, expecting to be disappointed. Much to my surprise, though, it looked like the pictures that I had seen online were accurate. Lodged amid the rest of the metallic parts were several different animatronics, all of which looked like they had just been tossed in here without a second thought. I did a quick check of the parts to make sure everything John had told me was there, and then started to pull them out of the unit and onto my flatbed truck. Not exactly rolling in style but probably headed to better conditions than being trapped in here for the next 20 years, I thought. The pirate was mostly intact, save for the head and one of the arms, which was exactly what John had warned me about. I think the arm rolled down the slope of the unit, so if you dig, you can find it, he had said. Once the bigger parts were on the truck, and I did just that. And that was when I saw that there was actually a third animatronic in the mix, that he had even listed at all. This one looked like it was in much better shape. It was a big, unpainted and unused male animatronic, with no clothes on it that looked like it had probably come from either Tomorrowland or the Main Street because it was in such good condition. The minute that I saw its uncolored gray eyes, no hair and weird toothy smile, I knew that it would be perfect for the door greeter of my attraction.
I moved the rest of the junk aside and pulled the animatronic out, carefully placing it on the flatbed and using my rope to tie it down, since it was all in one piece and then tried to decide if I even had room for the presidential robot. Somehow, I convinced myself to leave it, figuring that the newer animatronic was a better deal, and since the agreement with John had been for two, I told myself that I wasn't stealing. It all would have to go to the scrap heap eventually, so I was really doing him a favor and he was doing me one too, I decided. Once I was sure the animatronics were snug in the truck bed, I shot John a message. I went ahead and grabbed the bots, sending payment now, I said as I drove out of the storage unit. On the way to the haunted house, he shot me a message back, thanking me for the buy, the usual friendly closure for any seller and I turned my phone over and put it on silent so I wouldn't be distracted while I backed up. My plan was pretty simple. I was going to put the pirate robot in one of the prop walls, so when tourists passed by the head this thing would pop out, say its lines and maybe wave around its hook hand. The colorless one was a different story though. It looked so creepy and so lifelike that I knew it had to be near the front door. Maybe I could get a wig and paint its eyes blue, tell folks that it was my evil twin. I thought to myself as I put the truck in park and began to haul them inside. I laid the pirate parts out on my kitchen table and immediately spotted the audio box, deciding to tinker with it first after I set up the naked bot in the corner. I took a good look at the machine, impressed with how well it was made and noticed a few switches on the back, which I guessed were the motion controls. I flipped them all on and off a few times to see if any worked but no dice. The thing didn't even make a whisper. Then I sat down and started to work with the wires and my phone buzzed. It was John. Hey, did you just decide to get the pirate bot? And you didn't need to pay me for both if you were only getting one. I put the phone back down, realizing that it wouldn't be long before he found out that I had taken the newer model. But did he even know that it was there? Maybe, maybe not. Sorry, I figured since you went through so much trouble, I would just pay it forward. Thanks again, I responded. Back to work. Or so I thought. My phone buzzed yet again seconds later. Did you take anything else from the storage unit? Crap, well, now I have to explain myself. But still, I tried to bluff my way out of it. Is something missing? Sorry, I forgot to lock it back up. I can pay a little extra if something was stolen. Okay, that should keep him off my back for a little bit, I figured. There was a third animatronic. Wasn't meant to be sold. Did you see it? Double crap. I needed to talk my way out of this. Look, I didn't think it was a big deal. That's why I left the other one. Sorry, I think this robot is in better shape. Again, I can pay extra if it's worth more. I looked up at the colorless robot, wondering why it had been in the storage unit at all if it wasn't for sale. A flurry of text popped up from John. No, that one wasn't meant to leave the premises. Where are you now? I'll come pick it up. Did you turn it on? Don't. And one more that was a little worrisome. Not safe. The pirate voice box finally got to working at the same instant, a blood-curdling cackle filling the room and making me jump a little. 
I looked at the messages again, both confused and creeped out by John. And I hate to say it, but his last text made me decide to put the bot over in my closet, out of the way and not staring at me while I worked. Maybe it was because it was getting late, but after that weird conversation, I didn't like the way that it was looking at me. Once I put it up, I kept my focus on the pirate bot, trying not to let John's bizarre messages freak me out. When my phone buzzed again, this time a call, I was sure it was going to be John announcing that he had somehow found my haunted attraction. Private ID. Nervously, I answered and put it on speaker. Hey boss, you okay? What time do I need to get there for setup tomorrow? Pierre, one of the maintenance men, he always called from some landline. I can't tell you how relieved I was to hear from him. Uh, six is fine, maybe a little bit earlier. I got some new bots that I'll need help with, I told him. Sounds good, see you then. I rubbed my eyes tiredly and yawned as I checked the time. Way past my bedtime. Whatever was going on with the other bot, it would have to wait until morning, I told myself. I stood up and admired the pirate bot, pleased with the progress that I had made on it. But what he really needs to make him complete is a prop sword, I thought to myself. Just one more thing. I walked over to the storage closet and opened it up, rummaging through my equipment and then pausing. Wait, where was the other bot? I took a step back and then saw that it was leaning to one side over in the hallway. That's not where I put it. Is it? I sighed, realizing it was too late for me to remember, and I grabbed the prop sword trying not to let my half-asleep brain get the better of me. I placed the pirate sword in the hand of the bot and took another step back, grabbing my phone off the counter and taking a snapshot of it. As I did, I got a few more worrisome text messages from John. If turned on, make sure it doesn't go anywhere. Keep an eye on it until I get there, but not for too long. Shoot me your address in the morning so I can come get it ASAP. Did you leave? Are you safe? And one more that made me feel uneasy standing there. We'll trick you. Don't listen. Now he had officially creeped me out. I decided to block him. I turned back toward the hallway looking at the leaning bot. Just standing there, its colorless eyes looking straight into my soul and its weird teeth gleaming in the dim lights. Maybe I should just go home, I thought to myself. But then I reconsidered if this thing was valuable, John might try to break in here and take it from me. I decided to go get my small dolly so I could wheel it to my office and lock it in there. And it's not that I was buying into his creepy messages, but I kept my eye on the robot for as long as I could until I turned a corner and went downstairs. My attraction has a total of three different stories, by the way. The basement being the most popular for obvious reasons, and also the most cluttered. And pushing aside a few of the prop ghosts and ghouls, I found the dolly and started heading for the stairs. I was halfway there when I tripped over something in the floor and I crashed down. Christ on a cracker! I shouted at the top of my lungs as I rubbed my head from where I had bumped against one of my old medieval knights. And then I heard a voice from upstairs. Hey boss, you okay? Pierre, what was he doing here so early? 
I got up and hauled the dolly upstairs, answering back. Yeah, I just nearly killed myself, but other than that, I'm fine. As I got back to the main floor, I set the dolly aside and looked around. I didn't see Pierre anywhere. And I didn't see the robot where it had been moments ago either. And then I heard his voice again, but it definitely sounded different. Sounds good. It was coming from the hallway where the robot had been. Pierre, if this is a prank, I swear to God that I'll fire you. No response. I took a step into the hallway. Pierre, god dang it, you better answer me right now. I'll get you. What the heck? I took a step back into the main room, no longer feeling safe. I went over to the pirate bot and reached for the prop sword, holding it right in front of my body as I moved toward the hallway. The first room on the right was a bathroom, followed by the ticket counter and the hallway to my office. I stood a few meters away from the bathroom and I kicked the door in, keeping the prop sword right at eye level. The door swung open and closed, just as rapidly. Empty. Next was the ticket booth. It had room for an employee to squeeze in and hide behind a sheet, perfect for scaring little kids as they came in. Not so great now that I was apparently hunting a haunted animatronic doll. I stuck the edge of the sword into the curtain and gently pulled it aside trying to see anything. It was too dark so I had to actually physically step into the booth. Nothing. Where was this thing? I cautiously moved down the hallway toward my office, my heart beating out of my chest. There was a silhouette just in the doorway and I could see its colorless eyes, except they weren't so lifeless anymore. Now they were a bright and sharp blue. I didn't even hesitate. I came toward it, swinging the sword quickly and rapidly as I smashed it back into my office and toward my closet. It spewed out some stinky purple blood as it clawed at my face and I shoved it as hard as I could. As it was pushed backward, I felt its cold, lifeless skin touch mine and thought for sure that it whispered something, just as I had crammed it in the closet and slammed the door. Quickly, I slid my desk over and pushed it against the door. I stood back, taking a breath and trying to figure out if I had just gone crazy and attacked a lifeless doll, or something else entirely had happened. And then on the other side, I heard scratching. Heck no. I pushed the desk as far against the door as I could, and then reached into my pocket and got my storage keys out. Latching it tight, I took a step back to see if it would hold. Thumping. I jumped back a few feet. Nope, time to get out of here. This morning, I've had a chance to compose myself, have a little coffee and jot down as much detail about the incident. I don't know, I guess I could file a police report or something. After I left last night, I told myself it was all the strange fever dream. I'm walking into the haunt, I heard the soft sound of footsteps and stood still. Pierre, is that you? I shouted out. He popped his head around the corner and waved. Hey boss, you okay? My entire body relaxed and I walked down the hallway. Better now that I've seen you, I said. As I whipped out my phone and decided to unblock John and Pierre, I kept sweeping. You need to come pick this thing up. I messaged as I opened my office door. 
On the floor, I saw bits of the strange purple blood the thing had spewed out on me scattered across to the closet. The closet that was now open. It got out, I thought. Pierre, did you go in here? I asked, cautiously stepping toward it. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Some guy showed up and said that he was going to take care of whatever was in there. He shouted from the other hall as I creeped the door open. I saw what little was left of the bot, mangled and destroyed. Oh, heck no, that's good enough. I said as I decided to call John. It rang a few times as I paced the room. I've been trying to contact you, he said. Save me the speech and just come get the rest of your stuff, I snapped. I will as soon as you give me your address. John shot back. I clenched the phone hard and froze in place. What? I thought you came by this morning. My eyes darted down the hallway. I didn't see Pierre anywhere. I heard John take a breath. Give me your address now. Then I heard a voice from behind me. Hey, boss. You okay? My uncle was a Bigfoot hunter. Written by Draconox. I didn't have the best relationship with my uncle. It hadn't always been like this, though. I remember my childhood and how we had spent a lot of time together. Sometime after I had turned six, though, he suddenly went dark and his visits nearly ended completely. He used to come around about once every two months, and then out of the blue, I was lucky to see him once every ten years. He had nearly become a distant memory when I received a phone call from him asking for me to visit him. I was going to say no, but he then dropped the bombshell that he was dying. Years of smoking had caught up to him and he didn't have much time left. He even offered to pay for my flight. My uncle lived on a ranch far removed from other people. I think his closest neighbors lived about 20 miles away from his patch of land. He seemed to enjoy it this way, and I had wondered about it before. I would soon find out why. I knocked on the door and it opened to reveal the smiling face of my uncle. He was far removed from the memories that I had of him, just barely recognizable. But that's what 10 years in cancer can do to a person, I suppose. He invited me to sit down and we exchanged a few pleasantries and general chit-chat. My uncle had brought out some snacks which I had enjoyed as a child. I honestly didn't like them as much now that I was older. But I didn't want to say that and I just thanked him. It was after about an hour that he got to the meat of the matter. Now, nephew... He said. He actually used my name while talking, but I don't want to reveal it so I'll just replace it with nephew for the sake of this, and I'll address him as simply uncle. Are you still big in the whole saving the rainforest thing? Oh, right. Um, yeah, I still want to help protect the environment. I've started a project to help save a type of frog within South America, and there's this big... My uncle raised up a hand. Sorry, I would love to hear all about it. 
I did love your stories back when you were little. You had such a vivid imagination. Honestly though, I never thought that you would actually embark on a journey to become a real environmentalist. But I'm glad that you did. Nephew, I don't have a lot of time left. And so I want to get straight to the point. He took a deep breath. Do you believe in monsters? Monsters? I asked, confused. Yes, my uncle said. Monsters. They exist. You might not believe in them now, but you will once this is over. I don't understand, I said. Let me ask you another question. Do you believe that every species on Earth has a right to be protected? He asked. Well, yeah, I said. And if you had the power to save one of them, would you? Yeah, I would, I said. My uncle relaxed a little. He then got up to get his rifle. Do you know how to use one of these? Yeah, Dad taught me, but I've never actually used one of them in a dangerous situation before. I professed. You probably won't need it, but take it anyway, he said. I'll explain what this is about, but you need to come with me somewhere. We then spent 15 minutes hauling supplies to the back of his truck. All in all, it was probably enough to last someone several months, and I was honestly confused as to why my uncle would need that much. While they drove me to our destination, he started talking again. Do you believe in Bigfoot? Sasquatches, he said. Bigfoot? I said and laughed. The town where I grew up had had a Bigfoot sighting 10 years ago. It wasn't all too famous outside of it though, and I doubt anyone outside of our town has even heard of it. Well, you see, when you think of stories of ape men or the like, my uncle continued, you'll know that the Native Americans also had similar stories of seeing such creatures. That seems to tell me that they probably are real. But that leads to another question, of course. Why haven't we ever found one? It's said that at one point, the population of humans on Earth was only 10,000, but we bounced back from that. If we assume that there are even one-tenth that amount of them around, only a thousand, we should still have found traces of them. There should be videos of them migrating for food, but there aren't any and all you can find is very bad grainy footage occasionally. So they're not real then? I said with a shrug. My uncle shook his head. There's an easy answer to that paradox. The reason we haven't found them was that they were hunted to near extinction. By people like me. I was waiting for the laugh indicating that this was a joke but it never came. It was after my stint in the army. I was looking for work and I was an experienced hunter to boot and some of the suits from the feds came around to try and recruit me. They said that I had to hunt a kind of ape and that I needed the cash at the time so I agreed. Michael said. I never really found out why it was that the government wanted them gone. Michael said. But some of the other hunters had their theories. 
Some said that we were harvesting the Rorgans. Others said that we were going to clone them to make them super soldiers. Some people thought that the Bigfoot were actually more advanced than us and would threaten our position as the dominant species on this earth. I have a far simpler theory. We hunted them because we wanted their land. And Bigfoot tends to be rather docile most of the time, but they are also very territorial. Some people must have died at one point because of them while encroaching on their land, and the government realized that we had to wipe them all out. Of course, this isn't the 1800s, and if the public got wind of it well, it would be bad so the project was kept hidden. I was pretty good at it too, my uncle said. I had a total of 339 confirmed kills. I never thought anything of it at first. I thought that I was just hunting any other kind of animal. Until one day... I was all alone tracking two of these creatures when one of them almost got the jump on me. I managed to get it with a lucky shot, thank the gods or else I wouldn't be here today. But the other one ran away and I went after it. I was able to finish it off 20 minutes later, and I followed some of its older tracks to a small enclave in the woods. His hands began to shake a little and I offered to drive. No, it's fine. I had never seen a child before then. A child of Bigfoot, that is to see. Well, a baby animal was still an animal after all, and so I raised my gun when it did something none of them had done before. It spoke. I had heard roars and growls before, but never actual words. Two syllables. Mama. It said them again, and something else then began wailing. The way it said that, it kind of reminded me of you, nephew. He smiled fondly. I know you can't remember, but I remember holding you in my arms while you spoke your first words. You were so adorable back then. His smile vanished. It was then that what I was doing hit me. I wasn't saving humanity for some rabid animals. I was wiping out another species which was maybe as smart or even smarter than us. My uncle said. I never mentioned what happened to anyone else, but I quit sometime later. I'm sorry that I wasn't around more while you were growing up. I secluded myself here. I had to. He said and then stopped. We had arrived at a small clearing. He handed me the rifle and got out of the truck. There is something I haven't told you. There is a reason some of us thought that the Bigfoot was superior to us. They have a special skill, so to speak. At first, we thought they had some kind of telepathy, but no. They're able to communicate with a special type of sound wave that travels for hundreds of miles. It's at a frequency that humans can't hear. But once we used special equipment, we were able to detect it. That's why it's so hard to find them. Once you encounter one that'll contact every single other one in a hundred mile radius and tell them to run. My uncle pulled out a strange flute. You know what a dog whistle is, right? This is kind of the same thing. Up until then, it had occurred to me that this might have been some sort of elaborate joke. My uncle wasn't really a prankster, but maybe he had wanted to make me laugh one last time or something. 
that or maybe the medications were interfering with his reasoning ability. He had played something on the flute, and nothing happened for 10 minutes, even though my neck kept turning at the slightest sound made by the forest. Every twig, snapping, or bird chirping nearly made me jump as the suspense dialed up to a crescendo, when I finally told myself to relax and take a deep breath. And then I knew that my uncle was perfectly sane and hadn't been telling me some weird story. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a dark figure emerge. Now, you've probably seen some footage or drawings of Bigfoot. I'll say that many of them are reasonably accurate. You're looking at something about 8 feet tall which is very ape-like. That is to say, except for the face. That face was surprisingly human. And it made me wonder how it was that my uncle kept haunting them without a bit of remorse for so many years. It had a strange way of walking and paused after taking two steps. It pointed a finger at me. Who is he? The words were deeper than any other voice that I had heard and a little garbled. But the meaning was clear enough. He's my nephew, my uncle said. He then pointed to his truck. I got you all I need, but I'm dying. I won't be around for long. He then turned to me. I hope he'll keep taking care of you, but my time is up here. He began to cry, something I had never thought he would do. If you want to kill me, you can do it now. A chill went down my spine. I was the one who killed your parents. I think you know that, my uncle continued. You might as well take me out of my misery now. The thing raised a hairy fist and I raised the rifle reflexively, but my uncle put up a hand to stop me. This is what I want. I hesitated and that was a fatal mistake. Even if I wanted to, there was no way I could have reacted in time to save my uncle. But no killing blow came. Instead, the thing pointed a finger at my uncle and said, Mama. Tears flowed down my uncle's face like a faucet. After all this time, I helped my uncle, who was sobbing so it was really me doing all the work, unload the supplies and we drove off. What was that about? I asked him angrily. Were you really going to let it kill you? It's a he, my uncle corrected. And I have done so much wrong, nephew, throughout my life. Raising him was just a partial atonement for my sins. I know it isn't enough. I can't even walk into a church and confess my sins to anyone. He then paused. I am sorry, though. I didn't want to drag you into this. But someone needs to keep supplying him with food. I keep him hidden. But if he goes out to forage for food, he'll be found someday and this place isn't big enough for him to live off the land. Why the rifle then? I said. Because, my uncle said. I was worried that he might try to kill you as revenge instead of me. After all, I took out his family and he might have considered that to be fair. But I wouldn't let him hurt you, of course. I was completely wrong. I was thinking about what I would have done, but he isn't like me. He's much better and bigger of a person than I am. 
It was then that I realized what my uncle had been talking about earlier. The monsters he spoke of. He wasn't talking about the Bigfoot that I had just seen. He was talking about humans. Part of it must have been about himself. Most of it must have been about the other people who had organized the hunt for these creatures, who still walk the earth freely with no guilt in their souls. So, what do I have to do? I asked. My uncle's eyes lit up for a bit. Will you do it? Will you take care of him for me? My uncle said that he would leave his investments totaling $12 million. Apparently hunting Bigfoot paid very well, as well as the ranch. It would be more than enough for me to keep the place running, and I could even hire some helpers to work on the ranch, though he advised against it as some of them might talk. My uncle died three months later. I was with him when he passed away, and he couldn't confess his darkest sin to the pastor. He confessed it to me instead. For the last four years, I've been running this place mostly smoothly. Something strange did happen the last time that I went to supply him. Behind him, I saw two shadows. One was a bit shorter than him, and one was even shorter than me. It appeared that he had found himself a partner, and even a child. Where had they come from? Most likely, he had signaled to her using the special call that he had. The two of us didn't talk much, but I did tell him that I was happy for him. He smiled back and said, Thank you, brother. For many of you who enjoy hunting for Bigfoots, not in the sense that my uncle did, of course. I just mean people who like searching for signs of Bigfoot. I have a message to pass on to you all. Don't bother, you'll never find them. They know to hide from humans. Many if not all of the sightings you hear about are just hoaxes. I even have the suspicion that many of the hoaxes are done by the government to discredit true sightings. But I know that I can't solve this problem alone. If people don't know what's happening, the few remaining ones will be killed, and I can't save a species like that. I need to get the word out to the public to let them know what the government's been doing behind your back, and we can't let them continue. I have devoted a lots of time to saving these creatures, but I can't do it by myself. Already I know many of you will dismiss this as a tall tale, but for those of you who do believe, remember, the best things you can do for these creatures is simple. Leave them alone. In case you do find one or think you saw one in the area, maybe you could leave something to eat for them, but it's doubtful that they'll come back to that area. After all, even I wouldn't trust humans after what they've gone through. When we were 18, my friends and I played The Staircase Game, written by Certain Emergency 122. One Saturday night, when we were young and bored and felt invincible, my friends and I decided to play the staircase game. To play this game, you need a black staircase and at least three people. To win this game, you have to finish walking down all five staircases. There are only four rules. 1. Once you start to play the game, you can't quit. 2. You have to walk down the stairs backwards. 
3. While you're on a staircase, you are not allowed to talk to anyone. 4. While you're walking down the staircase, never ever let go of your travel companion's hands. Simple, right? We thought so too. My best friend Margo was the one who ultimately convinced us to play. Left to our own devices, Jonathan and I would have spent our entire summer in front of the TV, content to stay there until our respective college orientations had started. As Margot put it, you would have just rewatched the same boring shows, played the same boring board games, and gossiped about the same boring people. Margot was the kind of person who was going places. She had her whole life mapped out, from her college major to her 10-year career goals. Frankly, she was a terrifying force of nature. Uh, for example, when we were 12 years old and still naively believed in Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy, our parents took us to see the mall Santa. Margot argued with Santa for 15 minutes straight about why the nice and naughty lists were unfair and didn't account for the nuance. When coward and beaten, he finally told her that he would take her feedback into account and create the neutral list. Margot and I had been best friends for nearly all of our lives. To anyone else looking in from the outside, our friendship was impossible. Margot was brilliant, passionate, and outspoken. She took so many AP classes that she set a new record at her school, and she always knew exactly what she wanted to do and how to do it. In comparison to her, I meandered through life in a perpetual daze. Standing next to Margot, I was so quiet that people sometimes forgot I even existed. My parents would gaze at us and shake their heads in puzzlement. While they do say that opposites attract, my dad once said weakly, at the end of the day, it didn't matter what other people thought. Our friendship rested on the solid bedrock that was our mutual love for all things horror and the paranormal. We exchanged online scary stories late at night instead of sleeping, watched new horror movies and TV shows together constantly, and frequented paranormal discussion forums in between our classes. Instead of clashing, we evened each other out. I would have never thought it would be possible for anyone to come between us. Which brings me to Jonathan. He transferred to our high school at the start of senior year, a time when most friendships had already weathered countless adolescent storms and were set in stone. Everyone noticed him because he was tall, dark, and handsome, but he seemed arrogant and aloof. Instead of approaching anyone, he kept to himself and read books during lunchtime. One day, we accidentally bumped into one another, sending his books flying. Stephen King, Paul Tremblay, Stephen Graham Jones, and Sylvia Marino Garcia. While I helped him pick them up, I asked him what his favorite Stephen King book was. And just like that, we became friends. It turned out that he wasn't arrogant at all, just incredibly shy. His friendship was the missing puzzle piece that completed Margot's and mine. His dry humor and dark jokes fit right in. And of course, he was wildly in love with Margot. How do I know that? Because she's drop-dead gorgeous. She had long brunette hair that she often tied into a French braid and had dark gray eyes. 
I saw the way that his face lit up and the glance as he sent her away. Jonathan's voice interrupted my thoughts. Are we really going to do this? It would be so much less work to just lie on the couch all day. He brushed a hand through his dark curls and gave us that lopsided grin of his. The one that made my stomach do a flip. Margo had led us to the pantry in her enormous house. Shelves had grown with the weight of cans and jars, rice and pasta, and other food items stacked all the way up to the ceiling. If there was ever an earthquake, whoever stood in here would be buried alive under all that food. Of course we are, said Margot, and then she softened, looking at us pleadingly. Guys, I want an adventure. You know my parents. If they had their way, they would bundle me up in bubble wrap and lock me in a safe. Sadly, she was right. Mr. and Mrs. Auden were fiercely protective of Margot, and we suspected that that protectiveness stemmed from her sister's death. Marianne had drowned in their pool while Mr. Auden was on a business call. They hadn't found her body until it was too late. Margot had only been three years old at the time, Marianne five, so Margot didn't remember much about her. I wondered sometimes whether Margot tried so hard to be the best at everything, because she wanted to make up for the fact that her sister would never get to do anything. She led two lives. The life she wanted and the life her sister should have had. I know it's silly, and everyone else who's celebrating the end of our senior year are going on road trips or traveling abroad. All my parents are letting me do is sit on the couch. I can't even attend a pool party. She took a deep breath, her eyes shining with tears. I want to do this, and it would mean a lot to me if we did it together. Even if nothing happens, I don't know. Aren't you a little curious? Yes, of course I am. I said as I hugged her. Jonathan came over too, so we were all in one other's arms for a few seconds. Truth, I was curious about the staircase game. The first time that I had ever seen someone mention it was back in the late 2000s, and that post had been taken down, but not before Margo and I agreed that it sounded intriguing. A handful of other posts on those paranormal discussion forums that we love so much, detailed user's experiences with the game. According to those posts, each of the five staircases would be a hundred steps. The posts advised us to count the steps to make sure that we were on the right staircase because sometimes the game tried to trick you. Additionally, every staircase would be a different color. The first one was always black. Then the rest of these staircases would be red, gray, blue, white, in any order. Each staircase supposedly took you to a different dimension. But strangely, none of those posts described what happened after you went down the first staircase. But all of them did agree on one thing though. We should bring flashlights, food, and water with us. So, we were in the pantry. You might be wondering why we took this game so seriously. As I've said, Margo and I loved scary things. Together, we tried nearly all the weird stuff you've read online. We trespassed on abandoned asylums, visited haunted houses, and slept at cemeteries overnight. But our specialty, what we did the most in our free time, was playing supernatural games. We played the elevator game, Light as a Feather, Suara, the Corner Game, 
Darumasan, and more. We had never been able to play the staircase game before because it had been just the two of us. Over the past few years, as we had dabbled in these games, my belief in the paranormal had faded to a pale imitation of what it once was, like a fire slowly dying out into embers. Nothing had ever happened to us, not once. I wasn't sure if Margot still believed in the paranormal either, but still, it was a fun hobby. This would be Jonathan's first time doing anything like this. Senior year had been too busy for Margot and me to get up to our normal shenanigans. SAT prep classes, the SATs, college applications, homecoming preparations, and the time-honored tradition of playing a senior prank had occupied all of our free time. I tried not to think about the fact that Margot and Jonathan would both be at Stanford in the fall. Margot majoring in econ and Jonathan in biology. Margot had considered going to Yale until her parents made noises about moving to New Haven with her. Meanwhile, the only place that accepted me was our local community college. Don't get me wrong, I'm not against attending community college. Just this specific one. Everyone at our high school, and I do mean everyone, joked about how bad it was. I still hadn't told my friends where I was going. The disappointment on my parents' faces was bad enough. I said, If we're doing this, let's get started. Maybe we'll be back in time to check out that new Korean show trending on Netflix. Okay, said Margot. With one foot, she shoved the heavy black backpack with all their supplies towards Jonathan, who picked it up as if it weighed nothing. Let's head over to the basement stairs. A few years ago, someone had slapped black paint all over the basement stairs. Okay, I admit it. That someone was Margot and I, back when we had first heard that you needed a black staircase to play the staircase game. Her parents had been furious. We stood in the basement stairs, gazing down into the darkness. Personally, I wasn't a fan of the dark, and basements have always seemed creepy to me. I knew that it was a childish fear, the kind that you're supposed to outgrow, but that didn't really help. It just made me feel stupid for having a nightlight in my bedroom. Well, said Margot, it's now or never. She held out her hands to mine. Wait, said Jonathan, suddenly serious. If this game is real, then I should walk down first, in front of you guys. Just as I was about to tell Jonathan that the staircase game probably wasn't real, I saw the vulnerability on Margot's face. That expression answered my question as to whether or not Margot still believed in the paranormal. Unlike me, she had more to lose if it didn't actually exist. Why do over 4 in 10 Americans believe in the existence of supernatural beings? Because they do exist. Or maybe because we all have cognitive biases. Patternicity, pareidolia, a form of aphenia, and confirmation bias. In other words, we make connections in meaningless data or between unrelated events, and we interpret information in a way that confirms our pre-existing beliefs. Of course, I knew why Margot continued to believe in the paranormal. Marianne. It's a human impulse to try to make sense of a senseless tragedy, to dissect it endlessly so that you can figure out what exactly happened and why. If you admit that there is no fate, 
no purpose or order to anything in this world, then everything bad that has happened to you so far means nothing. The death of a loved one, an abusive relationship, bullying from classmates or colleagues. It's pure chance that you survived. Some people like Margot had a hard time coping with that. We linked our hands. Jonathan went first, then Margot, and then myself. Many last words? Jonathan joked. None of us said anything. I didn't know what Margot was thinking about. But I stared down into the darkness and my eyes strained to make out any shapes or movement. Let's do this, said Margot finally, with her usual certainty. And we walked down the first staircase together. I watched the light from the doorway vanish as the darkness pressed down on us. In a matter of seconds, it was so dark that I could no longer see these steps that I had already walked past. I kept imagining monsters in the darkness. Monsters with gleaming yellow eyes who waited impatiently for us to descend further down the stairs. My hands sweated in Margot's grip and I longed to discreetly wipe it off my shorts. Unfortunately, per the rules of the game, I couldn't let go yet. I took a quick moment to be devoutly thankful that it wasn't Jonathan's hands and mine. We walked and walked. It was hard to tell how far we had gone, especially since walking backwards down these steps disoriented me. Yet I still felt that we should have reached the end of the staircase by now. Even though that I wasn't familiar with this basement, common sense said that an object couldn't be bigger on the inside than it was on the outside i.e. the TARDIS is a lie. I chanced to glance over my shoulder to see how far we still had to go, and nearly fell over in shock. Instead of the darkness that I expected to see, there was a bright light below us right where the staircase ended. I swerved alarmingly towards what was probably a steep drop. My fingers brushed the air unable to find the railing that was supposed to be there. I caught my balance at the last second and heard Margot gasp behind me. I had almost brought her down with me. A perfect metaphor for our friendship. The words, I'm sorry, were actually on the tip of my tongue, just as these stupid rules came back to me at the last second. Uh, instead of saying anything in the darkness, I simply squeezed Margot's hand in apology. She squeezed mine back. I began counting the steps as we went down. I should have done that from the start, but I hadn't thought that the staircase game was real. Even now, I wasn't completely convinced. I don't think anyone would have been, aside from Margot, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Is a longer than normal staircase and a bright light at the end of it, enough to shatter years of conviction about the way that the world works. But as we drew closer to the light, I did start to believe that the game was real. The light showed us the details of our surroundings, and I could see that we were most definitely not in a basement anymore. I heard our footsteps and dripping water echo in the darkness. I had the impression that we were in some giant hollow cave. Air currents brushed my face. Weirdly, I even heard birds chirping, although why they were awake in the darkness I had no idea. By the time that the staircase ended, I counted 57 steps. That seemed about right, since I hadn't started counting from the beginning. 
We went through a doorway and stood around blinking these spots from our eyes, trying to adjust to the sudden contrast from darkness to bright light. Bright sunlight. That didn't make any sense. Yet as my vision cleared, I realized that we stood outside in the middle of a vast desert. Shining golden sand surrounded almost everything. The exception was a long black road stretching ahead of us. That road gleamed under the sun like some sleeping obsidian snake, and sat along the road at equidistant intervals from each other. Suspended in the air without any visible support, floated the doors. There were doors of all kinds and sizes. Some seemed like normal wooden doors, only painted in eye-watering shades from neon pink to a blinding yellow. Some were large enough for a Boeing 747 to fly through, others so tiny that a mouse could pass only. A handful of them were made of the oddest materials, from stone to glass to what seemed like steel. The only thing all the doors had in common was their bronze doorknobs. Those attached to stone doors looked really out of place. I turned to the black road. Sand dunes blocked portions of it from view and the heat was so intense that the very air shimmered. From what I could make out, the road ended in another door. Great. Even though I was afraid, confused, and overwhelmingly anxious, part of me, the part that had never stopped believing in the paranormal, rejoiced. Finally, something had happened to us. Something that couldn't be easily explained away by natural causes. Probably, maybe. This can't be real, whispered Jonathan. He let the backpack drop to his feet and stared around wildly. The blood had drained from his face, leaving his dark skin pale. This isn't possible, Margot said. Don't you see? She was transported with a kind of savage joy. It took me aback because that was the expression you expected to see on some unhinged religious leader's face as he preached to his flock about the end of days. It's real. The staircase game is real. She laughed wildly. If I had heard that laugh all in the dark, I would have been afraid. Okay, I said, made uneasy. It's real. I turned to search behind us for the staircase that had brought us here and saw nothing but more desert. The door to the staircase had disappeared. Jesus Christ, the staircase game was real. It's gone, said Jonathan, voicing my thoughts. Margot didn't appear to hear us. She strode forward and literally left us in the dust. Jonathan and I stayed in confusion, and then we ran after her. I could hear the cans clinking around in Jonathan's backpack. The heat was so intense that I was sweating even in my tank top and shorts. Alright, either I just ate the worst pot brownie of my life, Jonathan said panting, or I'm having a psychotic break from reality and I'm imagining all of this. I couldn't respond because I had to use all of my breath for running. I wasn't used to running on hilly terrain and the road hurt my feet. I was wearing thin-soled shoes. I leaned down to examine the road and realized that it wasn't smooth. Black obsidian stones comprised it, similar to a cobblestone road. By the time we had finally caught up with Margot, a stitch burned at my side and I sounded like I was close to death. I felt close to death. Slow 
down. I wheezed. I wanted to curl up in the fetal position, but Margo just kept on marching forward, forcing us to match her pace. We can't, said Margo impatiently. She wasn't looking at us, but straight ahead. Don't you remember the post by Pharaoh's 7921? Um, no. We only have a certain amount of time per floor. If we aren't quick enough, the next staircase will disappear and we'll be trapped here. Fresh adrenaline shot through my veins as I thought about being trapped in this weird desert. Now that Margot had mentioned it, I did remember Pharaoh's post and was annoyed at myself for forgetting. He hadn't specified exactly how long we had to find the next staircase, but he had been very clear that we needed to find it as soon as possible. You don't want to be there after the staircase disappears, he had written. Margot's urgency instantly made a total sense. As we trudged along, passing around the water bottle that we had brought, I waited for something terrifying to happen, but nothing did. The road was strange and the different sized doors were kind of creepy, but otherwise, it was just a desert devoid of any life. Eventually, as incredible as it may sound to you, I became bored. I guess it's true that humans can get used to anything. The heat remained relentless and I began to daydream about going to a nice, cool, air-conditioned mall. I imagined sitting at the food court directly under a vent with a giant smoothie in my hands. I was so lost in this daydream that when Jonathan tapped my shoulder, I flinched back as if he had hit me. Sorry, he said, but do you hear that? Actually, yes. Now that I was paying attention... I heard the strangest noise. We glanced back and saw that all the doors behind us rattled and vibrated, as if something was trying to get through them. By then, we were nearly at the road's end, and we could see that the road led to a red wooden door. Run, said Marco, her calm tone at odds with the fear in her eyes. We took off in a sprint. I hardly felt the heat anymore or the stones on the road that jabbed my feet. What stitch at my side? I was suddenly sure that I could run for hours. It's amazing what fear does. Along the stretch of road that we hadn't crossed yet, the doors there began to rattle as well. The sound of knocking and meaty thuds filled the air. The doors trembled and shivered as if things on the other side were ramming their way through. The second to last door, right next to the red one that was our destination began to buckle under the weight of whatever was pushing it. As I watched, it splintered in half. Go! I screamed. Margot reached the door first. She slapped at the doorknob, trying to open it, and then rammed the door with her shoulder. Jonathan pushed his way forward and simply turned the doorknob counterclockwise. We all piled through the door as it opened, our hands clutching at each other. As before, Jonathan was first and I was last. Because I was last, and facing the still open door, I saw what broke through the door closest to us. Splinters flew through the air as the door finally gave way under the tremendous force of battering it down. I saw them walk towards us as we backed down the staircase. They were beautiful, with shining white skin and hair. No, they were horrifying. Their faces were the faces of praying mantises. They opened their mouths to scream at us and I saw two sets of jaws, 
both filled with sharp teeth made for rending and tearing flesh, and too big for their triangular faces. And then they were heart-stoppingly lovely again, with liquid, dull-like eyes. I blinked, reeling from all the different images. I looked yet again, and saw that their corpse, pale bodies had been starved to thinness. I could count every single rib. They staggered towards us and held out their hands, beseeching. My mind began to buckle under the strain of trying to make sense of them. Their appearances flickered back and forth, lovely to ugly, monstrous to beautiful, over and over again. I somehow knew that if I didn't stop looking at them, I would go insane. But even with that knowledge, I couldn't tear my gaze away. My eyes burned, as if the very sight of them was cooking my eyeballs in their sockets. The last thing I saw before the red door slammed shut on us, leaving us in the blessed darkness, was that they had the arms and legs of giant spiders. They lunged at us and the hooks on those limbs scratched frantically at the closed door. The sound of the angry buzzing faded the further down that we walked. All three of us panted raggedly from our flight and from residual terror. We couldn't speak to one another though, not on these steps. I wanted to tell Margo and Jonathan that we had made a terrible mistake in starting a game that we couldn't quit. I wanted to say that I was worried we wouldn't all make it out alive. Four more staircases to go, I thought, and I was afraid. As we walked down the second staircase, that same darkness full of lively bird songs surrounded us again. The bird songs sounded even more wildly out of place than before. I wanted badly to talk about what I had just seen, the shapes that had been so beautiful and horrible at the same time, but I couldn't say anything aloud while on the stairs, not without breaking one of the rules of the staircase game. So to distract myself, I counted off the steps. It should have reassured me that the only thing I could hear was our ragged breathing. Instead, I kept thinking about the claws scratching at the door. Would we have enough time to run if they broke the door down? All too soon, we arrived at the end of the staircase. Jonathan pulled open the door ahead and we stepped out. Onto a moonlit beach. We stood at the edge of a vast ocean. Moonlight turned the waves black and they lapped at us, stealing the sand from under our feet. A salty wind swept over us, though instead of bringing the briny smell that I expected, it brought something sweet and metallic instead. Wait. A horrible thought crossed my mind, one provoked by the familiarity of that scent. I bent down to inspect the ocean more closely and instantly knew that we did not stand in water. Now can we talk about what's going on? Asked Jonathan. I need to throw up, I replied, and stumbled away from the sea of red around us. There were tall cliffs set further back on the beach. They reminded me of the white cliffs of Dover, not just because of their beauty, but because of the sense of history they held. These cliffs had stood here on the beach for 500 billion years already, and they would continue to do so for another 500 billion years, no matter what else happened. Staring at those cliffs, I somehow knew that great and terrible wars had been fought here. 
the blood of a slain army that stained the ocean red, transforming it into what it is now. After emptying my stomach of everything I had eaten for lunch, breakfast, and dinner from last night, I walked back just in time to see Margot and Jonathan arguing fiercely, practically shouting in each other's faces. You need to get a grip, snapped Margot, as if Jonathan was a recalcitrant toddler. We don't have time for your hysterics. I'm sorry, I didn't tell you more about the game in advance, but we have to focus on finding the next staircase before we're stuck here. It's more than that, Margot. What else aren't you telling us about this game? I instinctively did what I always do. Act as the peacemaker between Margot and whoever she was arguing with. Hey, stop fighting. We're all freaking out here. Let's take a deep breath and step back. As usual, everyone ignored me. Margot looked right past me and Jonathan and said frostily, I've told you everything I know. Winning the game is how we get back home. So, can we get on with this? Jonathan gave her a disgusted look. You love this. You love the fact that we're trapped in some kind of horror movie right now. You don't actually give a crap about going home. If it was up to you, we would stay here forever. Jonathan turned away and waded deeper into the sea. I hurried after him. Jonathan, wait. Where are you going? There's a door over there. It must lead to the next staircase, right? Said Jonathan bitterly, pointing at a seemingly empty patch of darkness. The waves hid what he pointed at. Yet, when I kept my eyes trained there, in between one wave and the next, I saw the gray door. It was half-submerged, only the very top of it visible. But then it was gone again, obscured from view. I had no idea how Jonathan had even managed to spot it in the first place. The tide had pulled me further away from the safety of the beach. Jonathan was tall enough that the water, or rather blood, only hit his thighs. Meanwhile, I was already chest deep in it. If I wanted to keep moving forward, I would have to swim, which I really didn't want to do. I imagined ducking my head under all that thick blood and being completely surrounded by it, feeling it pressed against my face like something alive. I took one tiny step further in and stopped. Against all logic, the blood felt warm against my skin instead of cold. That was better though, wasn't it? How much worse would it be to have to swim in cold or cooling blood? We've wasted enough time, said Margot coming up to stand beside me. You know we're standing in, um, blood, right? She dove in without a reply or any hesitation, though I saw her grimace as it washed over her. I don't think I can do this, I thought, but they were already more than 20 feet ahead of me. Apparently, I was the only one who had a problem diving in into a literal sea of red. I took another tiny step forward, and this time, a wave lifted me right up off my feet and bowled me over. The current curled around me and tugged me forward like an impatient child. I swam, doing my best to not think about what I was swimming in. It was weirdly similar to swimming in water, so I concentrated on moving forward, slicing my arms through the blood and paddling my feet, and I tried not to dwell on the taste of iron in my mouth. I really, really didn't want to get left behind. Something brushed my ankle. Seaweed. I scoffed at myself. What could live in a sea of blood? But then again, technically none of this was possible. 
The post had said, these staircases took us to different dimensions. What if the very laws of nature differed from dimension to dimension? What if these staircases took us to a place so different from our own world, that the air itself was toxicized, or that gravity tripled and crushed us all into a pulp? Preoccupied with my thoughts, I hardly noticed when something brushed my feet again, and then what was unmistakably a hand closed around my ankles and started to drag me downwards. Stupidly, I opened my mouth to scream for help and, of course, blood filled it. I swallowed convulsively without thinking and I gagged. Thank God I had already emptied the contents of my stomach, otherwise, if I had had anything else to throw up then, I would have. The blood closed over me and I couldn't see anything. I struggled to break free of the iron grip around my ankles, pummeling at whatever held them. It let go of me. I swam up, up towards the distant moonlight, my lungs aching with the need to suck in great lungfuls of air. My head broke the surface right as I heard Margot yell, Alex, where are you? I could dimly see her and Jonathan treading water next to the half-hidden door. I spat out the blood from my mouth. There's something in the water. It... A coughing fit erupted me. It dragged me down. God, the taste was awful. I swam towards them, still spitting it out of my mouth. Funny to think that I had been so concerned about grossing Jonathan out earlier, and now I looked like an extra from the set of Carrie. The only comfort that I had was that, although they hadn't been dunked into the blood quite as thoroughly as me, neither Jonathan nor Margo had escaped entirely unscathed. Margo slid her hand along the door before uttering a triumphant cry and wrenching the door open. I expected to see the sea of blood to float on the stairs, but some invisible barrier had stopped it. The sea simply split around the open doorway. Only a few droplets of blood splattered down onto these steps leading into the darkness. I peered down. What color is that? Gray, said Margo decisively and the staircase before that was red. I admired the fact that she had had the presence of mind to note down the color of the last staircase while we had been running for our very lives. Margot added, This was easy. I mean, sure, if the sight, smell, touch, and taste of blood doesn't make you puke nonstop. And more to the point, I glanced at her sidelong and said resignedly, Did you have to jinx it? Right on cue, the sea started to ripple and churn around us. Frothy blood sprayed out into the night. As we watched, disembodied arms emerged from the depths and reached for us like sunflowers orienting themselves towards the sun. They were small, like the arms of children but too thin to be anything human. All of them were white and somehow untouched by all that red. And once more, I felt hands brushing against my feet. Cold fingers closed around my ankles. Let's go, yelled Jonathan. Move it. I reached out to Margo and just as our hands had clasped together, the arms below tugged at me in earnest, forcing my head back under the blood and wrenching my arm painfully in its socket. A brief tug of war ensued. Margo wouldn't let go, so the hands below began to pull her down with me. I wondered for a moment if I should simply let go of Margo's hand. I was the weak link here. After all, the hands held me and not my friends. But fear overrode my noble intentions and I didn't want to die. Especially not like this. 
my lungs filling with blood in my last sight, the white cliffs staring down at me impassively. By some miracle, Jonathan pulled both of us through the doorway. One second, my hand slid inexorably out of Margot's, my fingernails leaving deep furrows in her skin as I tried to hang on. And next, my feet were on solid ground. It was strange being on the other side of the invisible barrier that stopped the sea. Occasionally, blood sprayed through and onto us. Not that it could do much worse. Our clothes, our hair, our skin. Everything dripped in it and we left puddles behind us. It was going to be even worse when it dried. Jonathan took a deep breath out of me. I knew with a sudden fear that he was going to speak. Useless knowledge because there was no way for me to stop him. No way unless I broke one of the rules of the game myself and let go of Marco's hand. Do you think... said Jonathan. And then he realized his mistake. He clapped his hand over his mouth as if he could stuff the words back down his throat. But it was too late. Those three words echoed through the darkness and the birdsong abruptly stopped, as if someone had switched it off with a remote. I threw a quick glance over my shoulder to try and gauge how many more steps we had to go. The sight wasn't reassuring. Margot tugged at my hand urgently, and I picked up my pace to match hers, even though this meant that I kept nearly slipping on the puddles of blood. Suddenly, a great wind buffeted us, and we were forced to slow to a snail's pace. The wind kept trying to blow us back up the stairs. Hungry shrieks filled the darkness. By then, the flashlights from the backpack were in our hands, but none of them worked save for the one Jonathan held. The sea of blood had ruined nearly everything inside of our backpack. Even that one flashlight sputtered in the darkness, on the verge of going out. Yet it cast enough light to reveal the birds high above us, the ones that had been chirping and singing except they weren't birds. I caught a glimpse of something staring down at us with insane, hate-filled eyes. Human eyes. A human face. But it had the body of an enormous eagle. It spread its giant, gray-brown wings, opened its mouth to reveal needle-sharp teeth, and screamed at us with a woman's voice. Other hungry cries filled the air. How had we ever mistaken that for birdsong? We scrambled down the steps as fast as we could, helping each other up whenever one of us fell. Jonathan dropped the flashlight and it didn't matter. We didn't need to see them to know that they were coming for us. I don't know who fell, Jonathan or Margot, but whoever it was brought all of us down. We tumbled down the stairs, thumping against one painful step after another. It was impossible to keep holding hands. I continued to fall head over heels until I smashed into the ground right beside Margot. I staggered up somehow, my ears ringing. I pulled Margot to her feet and her eyes fluttered. She was only half conscious and would have slumped right back down to the ground if I hadn't caught her at the last second. Jonathan was sitting up already, holding his left hand out in front of himself. The fall had crumpled it into something broken and bleeding. Between the two of us, we managed to drag Margo with us as we limped to the door. I tugged on the handle, hearing these shrieks growing louder behind us. By now, the ringing in my ears had fully stopped, and I could hear what sounded like words in the screams behind us. 
I pulled on that door handle with all of my strength, praying that we weren't too late, praying that we wouldn't feel sharp talons digging into our unprotected backs. And then the door finally opened, and we stumbled through it from one horror to another. The stench hit us at first, the unmistakable aroma of rot and everything associated with it. Bright sunlight illuminated it in all its brutal detail. Corpses, stacked together in huge mounds so that they loomed over us and seemed to stretch into the sky endlessly. The bodies were awful. Those that still had intact faces stared at us unseeingly with their cloudy eyes. It was as if some giant hand had carelessly thrown them to the ground. Yet there was a clear pathway between the bodies. It curved to the left and disappeared from our sight. The sky was black with crows. They flew in circles overhead or perched on the bodies that they could reach. They cawed merrily to each other and us while they feasted on the dead. Some of them had already gorged themselves full, yet they still kept pecking away, tearing away strips from the corpses. As I watched, one crow expertly peeled somebody's face off, revealing the muscle and fat underneath. It's my turn to throw up, said Jonathan, and he instantly leaned over and vomited noisily. But I didn't feel disgusted. The sight was too much, too unreal. It was like seeing the pages of some illustrated storybook spread out before us. My mind simply could not comprehend it. If I didn't look at the faces of them, I could pretend they weren't real. I could pretend that they were simply Halloween decorations. Yes, that seemed safe. There was no need to examine them any more closely, or to think about how they must have died in pain and terror. Margot groaned. Where are we? She started to get up and froze. I cleared my throat. I think it's some kind of maze. A maze? Why? I shrugged uncomfortable. I don't know. The way the bodies are stacked, they're like the walls of the labyrinth. I trod off. I was pretty sure that I was right. It was a labyrinth made of corpses and the door to the next staircase would be at its center. I glanced at Jonathan. He looked exhausted. Under the sunlight, his hand was an even worse than I thought. Three fingers had been bent backwards or sideways into broken sticks, and they were beginning to swell. He tried to smile at me. It's not as bad as it looks. It was exactly as bad as it had looked, maybe even worse. But if pretending otherwise helped him get through this, so much the better. Unlike everyone else, I had been lucky enough to escape the fall with nothing more than a few bruises. Jonathan and Margot's injuries meant that we couldn't go as quickly as we should have, and we kept running into dead ends. I suppose we could have split up or tried to climb through the gaps in the bodies, but by unspoken agreement, we stayed together on the path. None of us said anything aloud, but we all knew that we were running out of time. I watched the sun tread its path across the sky, leaving behind itself flames of blazing yellow, marigold, and pale pink. It was the most beautiful sunset that I had ever seen. I couldn't appreciate it. Its indifferent beauty seemed to mock all the corpses strewn here, just as the last of the sun dipped below the horizon. The corpses woke up. Someone whispered my name. Alexandra, 
Alexandra, in a deep and guttural voice. I looked around to see who had spoken and stared straight at the corpse on my right. I couldn't help but take several steps back, my mind reeling in horror. It said in its broken voice, They came from the sky. We asked them to come down to help us. They rounded us all up and took us into their ships. They killed us, Alex. Another corpse turned its head towards me. The crows had eaten away at its nose and lips, but it still had its eyes. They danced with silver fire as it said. Alex, I watched my son die. They made me watch. They took my son apart until there was nothing left. And then they all laughed. All around us, the body stirred, opened their mouths and spoke. Most talked about the way that they had died. Others talked about their regrets, their mistakes, their loved ones. They all spoke at once so that it was nearly impossible to distinguish one voice from another. I could only catch disjointed words and phrases. Margot stood by the small body of a child, whereas Jonathan stared at a corpse that had only a head and a torso left. I couldn't hear what the dead whispered to them, and I couldn't pretend that these bodies were just Halloween decorations anymore. If we didn't get out of here soon, I was going to lose my mind. I was about to go to my friends to tell them that we had to leave right now, when another corpse spoke from beside me. Margot is lying to you, it said. What? I moved closer. Scraps of flesh clung to its weathered skull, and it stared at me with empty and gaping eye sockets. I waited for it to say more, waited for countless more minutes until I realized that it had said all that it would. I shook my head. It must have lied to me to keep me here longer. I ran over to Margot and had to physically drag her away from the child, my hand tight on her arm. We need to go, Margot, I said through gritted teeth. Finally, she stopped struggling to get away from me and turned to give me confused eyes. She asked, How long has it been? and sounded close to crying. I don't know, I replied. Help me with Jonathan. It took the both of us to tug him away and by then, we were all out of breath and sweating, but we had to hurry. How much time had we lost listening to the dead? We scurried through the labyrinth frantically, trying to keep track of all its twists and turns, keenly aware that our time was running out. When we finally reached the center of the maze, we saw three blue doors floating there instead of one. Oh crap, said Jonathan, summarizing my own thoughts perfectly. We'll have to try all of them. I marched forward and opened up the first door on the left. The staircase in this one is yellow. Margo, is that one of the colors? No, said Margo. She made no move to inspect any of the doors herself, and I wondered what the corpse had said to her. Jonathan reached out with his uninjured hand to open another. This one's blue. So is this one, I said. Let's try and count in the steps. Both staircases had a hundred steps. We both looked at Margot then, because she knew the game best. But she simply gazed back at us. Her face was pale and drawn. She looked like a child who had just seen the monster hiding under her bed. Margot, come on, I said, trying to sound calm, even though I felt anything but. 
And do you have any idea which door to choose? Margot shook her head. I don't know. I, I don't know. Tears spilled out of her eyes. The doorknob shivered under my hand and suddenly, I was holding something soft and stretchy, as though the doorknob was turning into taffy. I looked across at the door across from Jonathan and saw that it was beginning to melt as well. Okay, screw this. We're going in. I said, arbitrarily picking the door closest to Jonathan. I strode over and flung it back open even as the doorknob dissolved in my hand, leaving behind a foul-smelling liquid. Are you sure? demanded Jonathan. There's a 50% chance it's the right one, I said. We all went inside, and as the door slammed shut behind us, enclosing us in that now familiar darkness, I prayed that we hadn't chosen the wrong door. We braced ourselves to be attacked again. Instead, the same lovely bird song as before greeted us. We all relaxed in increment, our hands no longer clutching at each other quite so tightly. I couldn't relax all the way though, because now I knew that those things above us weren't actually birds, no matter how much they pretended to be. As we neared what seemed to be the end of the stairs, my heart began pounding an impromptu drum solo. If this staircase had less than a hundred steps or more, that meant we, or rather, I had chosen the wrong door. We could try to run back up the stairs if that was the case, though I didn't hold out much hope that we would make it. Going back upstairs meant breaking yet another rule of the staircase game, which in turn meant something else nasty trying to kill us. At any rate, I would see the other door mounting, so even if we did make it back up in one piece and re-enter the labyrinth, there wouldn't be anywhere else to go. All we could do now was fervently pray that we were on the right staircase. 98, 99, 100. We came to a halt. I craned my neck over my shoulder to see that the steps had ended. We had chosen the right door after all, thank God. If the game rules hadn't expressly forbade talking to each other while on the stairs, I probably would have celebrated our luck by cheering loudly. As it was, I wanted to collapse in relief. Scratch that. I wanted to collapse, period. We're over halfway there, I thought, and tried to squash the hope that followed. I reminded myself that this game probably had tons of more unpleasant surprises in store for us. Jonathan opened the door, and a bizarre sight greeted our eyes. We stood in a spacious room completely made of mirrors. The ceiling, the floor, the walls, every inch of it was covered with mirrors. A soft glow illuminated the room, though we couldn't see where it came from. We could, however, see the white wooden door set at the other end of the room. Like us, it produced infinite reflections. The entire room reminded me of the Infinity Mirror Rooms installation series by Kasuma Yoyoi. It had that same sense of space and time warping out of joint. Granted, compared to everything else we had been through so far, walking across a room, albeit a large one covered in mirrors, was nothing. This is too easy, I muttered. I kept staring at the door, expecting it to vanish before my eyes. It stayed stubbornly solid and annoyingly ordinary, as if someone had happened to pluck it from a house in the suburbs and deposited it here. 
Jonathan said. Agreed. There is a moment where we simply stood around waiting for something terrifying to appear, but the only things that moved in the room were our own reflections. It was the first time I had seen myself since we had started the game, and I finally realized that we all looked, well, horrible. Itchy, flaking, dried blood covered us. Our hair and eyelashes were stiff with it. Our eyes and teeth showed very white against all that reddish brown blood. If another human being happened to meet us right now, they would probably run away screaming in the opposite direction. I don't know why the thought struck me as so funny. Probably because one thing after another had been chasing us nearly non-stop for the past few hours. And I was near delirious with exhaustion. Once I started laughing, I couldn't stop. And Jonathan got it. Good thing no one else we know is here right now he said, grinning back at me. Even covered in blood, that lopsided smile of his was lovely. My dad would probably have a heart attack. At long last, we were able to sit down and rest for a few minutes. Thanks to the sea of blood, our flashlights, phones, and portable phone chargers were completely ruined. The water bottles and canned food were alright, though the backpack that they had been carried in would never be the same again. You would think, I said, while trying not to gulp down the canned peaches all at once. Someone who played the game before could have warned us that the blood would ruin nearly all of our supplies, including the flashlights that they told us to bring. Why not tell us to bring dry bags? Better yet, why not tell us to bring weapons? Jonathan was too busy wolfing down his own canned peaches to answer, but Margot finally spoke. It's different for everyone. What? The staircase game is different for everyone. You encounter different things and go to different places. It really depends on what you fear or what you want. The only thing that's the same across all of them is the darkness of the staircases. And what's in the darkness? We both eyed her with hard suspicion, but I was the one who had asked. How do you know that, Margot? She heaved a deep sigh. I talked to Pharaoh 7921 before we came here. His real name is Lucian Hammond, and he's played the staircase game a few times now. Before I could respond, Jonathan said with an edge in his voice, That would have been helpful to know, oh, I don't know, at any previous point before we started playing this game. Is there anything else that you want to share? I added. Margot shook her head and clammed up again. Frankly, it was eerie to see her so silent and downcast. She had been able to shrug off everything out so far. Now that we were no longer running for our lives, I personally was struggling not to dwell on these shapes that had broken through the doors in the desert. Although I didn't enjoy being stuck in a constant state of fear, at least then my brain was too occupied with surviving to focus on anything else. We should get going said Jonathan unenthusiastically. Yeah. Neither of us made any effort to stand up. As the adrenaline receded, fatigue took its place and my eyelids seemed to weigh a hundred pounds. If I could have slept here, with solid reassurance that the door wouldn't disappear on us, I would have had zero trouble passing out in the cold, hard glass. It felt as though we had been stuck in the game for decades already. 
Margo stood up and started walking over to the door because, of course, she did. It occurred to me then that Jonathan had been right. She was more focused on winning the game than going home. Her secrecy over what she knew about the staircase game and her behavior recently had crossed the line from stubborn to obsessive. She went to the door as though she didn't feel the hunger and exhaustion the rest of us felt, or even any pain from her fall down the stairs. Worried, I got up to follow her, only to see that all of her reflections stood still, out of sync with her. One of them waved at me sardonically. I heard the sound of breaking glass, as if someone had accidentally dropped a stack of dishes on the floor, or shattered a mirror. Jonathan said from behind me, Alex. I turned around. For a full minute, I couldn't comprehend what had just happened. I looked up to Jonathan's smiling face and down to where his hand rested on my shoulder. It was the injured hand, the one that he had been cradling close to his chest while we ate our food. Except it was whole and perfect again. And then I looked at the shard of glass held in that hand, roughly six inches long and two across, the shard that he had shoved all the way through my left shoulder. There was no pain, not yet. I whispered, Jonathan. Some instinct made me look down at where his reflection should have been, and I saw another Jonathan staring up at us, trapped behind the glass. My Jonathan. He screamed something at me, but I couldn't hear what he said because the thick glass muffled his words. He started slamming his hands against the glass, leaving bloody smears on it as he tried to punch his way through. And then the other Jonathan pulled the shard back out of my shoulder and that hurt. It burned. And the pain cleared my head enough that I could think again. Blood spurted out of my wound as I pushed him away or I tried to. I couldn't move my left arm at all. It hung from my punctured shoulder dead and useless. The other Jonathan evaded me easily and wrapped one hand into my hair so he could pull my neck back and dig the tip of the shard into my throat. Any last words, he said mockingly. I was hoping for a snappy comeback to come to mind. The best I could do was refuse to give him the satisfaction of begging for my life. I slammed my elbow into his stomach and heard him give out a small oof sound. Then I twisted around and grabbed the shard from his slackening hand. I nearly succeeded in shoving it into his throat, except by then one of my own reflections had risen out of the mirror behind me like an evil ghost. She forced my arm up and away from the other Jonathan, and then used her to hold on to me to throw me across the room. On one hand, she had thrown me towards the door instead of away from it. On the other hand, I couldn't leave Jonathan behind. I scrambled to my feet, shaking my head to try and clear it out of the gray spots dancing across my vision. I managed to take two steps towards where I could still see him trapped in the mirror and then Margot yanked me backwards by my injured arm. Pain exploded through it, and I could barely hear her say, Alex, we have to go. Jonathan's still here. I snarled at her. We can still save him and get him out. Even as I said it though, I knew it wasn't true. More of our reflections had stepped out of the reflections of the white doors and the mirrors. Ten other Jonathans. Ten other Margos and ten other Mees 
stood between us and Jonathan, and more were coming, an infinite number of them pushing their way out of the mirrors as if the mirrors were made of water and not glass. Those reflections already in the room started running towards us, their eyes burning bright with bloodlust. Margot dragged me backwards. It's too late. We can't help Jonathan. We don't have a choice. Yes, we do. I screamed the words so loudly that my throat ate. Let go of me. She didn't. She dragged me away from the room and through the doorway, toward the final white staircase waiting for us. I watched our reflections stop chasing us. I watched them turn towards where Jonathan was still trapped. They converged on him, dropping down to put their faces right by the glass above him. And the very last thing I saw, before they completely surrounded him and the door slammed shut, was Jonathan staring at us with agonized, despairing eyes still beating on the glass. I immediately tore myself free from Margot and ran towards the door. Only rough wood met my fingertips and no doorknob. I tried to wrench it back open anyways, wrapping my fingers around the edges of the door and ignoring the sharp splinters. Right then, I didn't care about the staircase game or its dumb rules. I didn't even care about going home. What I cared about was Jonathan and the way that he had looked at us as we left him behind. And then the door began melting under my hands. No, 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 I thought. I tried to hold it in place, like I thought the door would turn solid again if I could just make it stay still. Margot touched my shoulder and I shook her off violently, unable to even look at her. Part of me knew she probably had been right, and that there was no way we could have saved Jonathan. At least not without getting ourselves trapped behind the mirrors too. Yet a larger part of me seethed with rage. We could have at least tried. How could she have abandoned him like that? I don't know how long I spent in the darkness trying to get the rapidly disappearing door back open. I did everything I could think of. At one point, I ran to the other side of it and tried to open it from there, alternating between pushing and pulling. I even flung myself through it as it disappeared. That didn't work either. In the end, as the last of the door dissolved in front of my eyes, all I could do was stare at the empty space where it had been half a minute before. When Margot reached out to me, I didn't bat her hand away again. My mind was completely blank. I followed her obediently down the steps because I couldn't think of what else to do. Had I missed some obvious way to open the door? Was it completely impossible to reopen after it closed? Or had I simply not tried hard enough? Halfway down the stairs, I contemplated simply sitting down and refusing to move. Yet that wouldn't bring me any closer to saving Jonathan either. Eventually, I realized that my best bet was to make it through the next door. Maybe there would be more doors on the other side of it. Doors that connected back to the mirror room. So when Margot pulled open the door at the end of the staircase, I didn't try to dash back up the stairs again. I stepped through it without hesitation, and I had to shield my eyes from the warm sunlight that shone down on us, so bright that it didn't seem real. As my vision adjusted, I saw that we stood in the center of a beautiful meadow, roughly the size of two football fields, and daffodils grew everywhere, nodding cheerfully at us, and the air smelled like spring, green and new, the scent of wet earth and growing things. 
It was spring here, and it would always be spring. I looked across the meadow and saw a black door. Only one and no others beside it. On the riverbank closest to us. The river looked polluted. It was black as well. And it rushed around the whole meadow in a giant loop, enclosing us. The other riverbank, way past the door, was shrouded in a gray, near the opaque mist. I couldn't make out anything on that riverbank except for a boat of some kind that sat at the very edge of the bank. A tiny, rickety boat that bobbed up and down in the furious current, one stiff breeze away from falling apart. I took a deep breath. The batter to yell at Margo went unexpectedly, contentment stole over me. It was the kind of contentment you feel when it's a cold winter night, and you're safely ensconced at home with your loved ones. And you're sitting in cozy armchairs beside the fireplace, and a really good book in your hands, and you can hear the wind howling and furiously yanking at your windows. Knowing that it's absolutely awful outside only makes you more grateful to be warm and safe inside. That kind of contentment. If I stayed here, I would feel that contentment forever. No more arguments, no more worries, no more fear ever again. I could let go of all my rage and self-loathing. It was incredibly tempting, and I most likely would have given in if Jonathan's face hadn't flashed across my mind right then. The peas didn't disappear entirely. It simply lessened enough for me to decide that it wasn't yet time for me to stay here. I turned to Margot, ready to shake the answers out of her if necessary. Luckily for her, I didn't have to. She saw the look on my face and said, I can explain. I glared at her, fist clenched tightly by my side. I'm waiting. The staircase game gives you whatever you want. That's what Lucian told me. What he didn't tell me is that the game needs a sacrifice before it gives you anything. She took a deep breath. I saw my sister back there, Alex. I saw her in the labyrinth. She told me that she had died because of me. She started to cry again. I stared at her, my anger momentarily forgotten. That's impossible, Margot. You were three years old when she had died. She told me that I fell into the pool. That the reason she died is because she went in after me. She helped me out, Alex. And she drowned in there all by herself. I wanted to tell Margot that she must have heard a lie. But actually, it had a horrible ring of truth to it. I remember the corpse telling me, Margot was lying. And did it been right? Unwillingly, I felt a moment's sympathy for Margot. Margot threw a pleading look at me. The whole reason I ever wanted to play this game was to bring her back. I had to keep going, don't you see? Her confession rendered me silent for a few minutes. And then my anger roared back to life and I said, So you decided to sacrifice one of us. How did you choose Jonathan? Or was it supposed to be me? No, said Margot quickly. I would never sacrifice you. So what? You didn't give a crap about Jonathan. I chose you, Alex. I chose you and my sister. I shook my head. No, that's not true. You chose yourself like always. Suddenly, I was close to crying myself, except my tears were born of rage. I had always known that Margot had missed her sister, 
Just because she couldn't remember Marianne that well didn't mean she loved her any less. Yet I never thought Jonathan and I would have to pay for the cost of that love. How could she have lied to us? How could she possibly stand there, trying to justify herself if she hadn't condemned Jonathan to being trapped in the game for the rest of his life? Tell me how to get back to the mirror room. I can save Jonathan without your help. I waited for her to respond, only to find her staring past me. I followed her gaze to see the dead walking towards us. They came out of the river. They started out as dark, gray figures with indistinguishable features. And then the closer they got to us, the more clearly I could see them. Except they stayed pale and ghostly, like they were barely there. How did I know that they were dead? Because Marianne had led the pack. She could have been Margot's twin. Only the slightest of differences set them apart. As if someone had set out to create two identical figurines and his hand had slipped at the last second. They had the same build, the same heart-shaped face and the same eyes, except Marianne was taller and her hair was wavy instead of straight. She was inexplicably older too, our age maybe, or the age she would have been if she had lived. Margot ran to her. It was my turn to grab for her to hold her still, but she slipped through my grasp like water. I ran after her even though a tiny voice inside my head screamed at me to get out, to leave before it was too late. Even though I was still angry at Margot, angry enough that I never wanted to see her again, I knew somehow that if I left her to the dead, they would do something unspeakable to her, and maybe she would deserve it, but I didn't want to be the one to decide that. The dead stopped moving. They waited for us to come to them, their eyes as dull and dusty as marbles. Margot finally slowed down when she had reached Marianne. She stopped beside Marianne, as if she couldn't believe her sister was finally here. I stopped as well, still a good distance back from them. Margot, I called. Get away from them. It was like she couldn't hear me, or maybe she simply didn't want to. She threw her arms around Marianne and hugged her tightly. Marianne didn't return the embrace. She was as lifeless and unmoving as a doll. Let's go, Marianne, Margot said. Let's get out of here. She tugged at her sister, and Marianne actually walked forward a couple of steps before stopping. Margot dropped her sister's hand as if it had burned her. I can't leave, said Marianne. Her voice was the eerie sound of branches scratching at your window late at night. Nothing human. Stay with us. I knew with instant clarity how the staircase game had interpreted Margot's wish. She probably thought, I want to see my sister again. And the game was fulfilling exactly that wish. Nothing more and nothing less. I also knew Margot well enough to predict her response. I screamed at her anyways, even though I know it wouldn't make a difference. Don't, Margot, don't. Margot didn't even spare me a glance. Instead, she kept staring at her sister, the agony playing on her face. She couldn't go back. She had lied to herself every step of the way here, telling herself that her friends didn't need to know why she wanted to win the game or even what she could get if she won. She had told herself that the game wouldn't affect us. 
And then when she found out that it did, and in the worst way possible, she tried to justify it all with simple math. One life was going in and one life was going back out. It wasn't really wrong to do this. If she went back home empty-handed with Marianne still rotting in her grave, and Jonathan worse than dead, that was as much as admitting that she had made a mistake, that she had majorly screwed up, and Margot never ever made mistakes. Margot licked her lips nervously and gave a single nod, and the dead tore her apart. They reached out with terribly strong hands and they tore off her limbs, her head, and they dug their hands into all that meat. They ripped her open the way you tear apart the wrapping paper of a Christmas present. She didn't even have time to scream. They sprayed her blood and stray teeth into the air and then scooped up handfuls of it and stuffed it into their mouths, smacking their lips in enjoyment. It was like watching a swarm of beetles and maggots and rats devouring a dead deer. They ate like they had been starving for a hundred years, a thousand. As they ate her, the color returned to their faces and bodies. They looked alive again. And then one of them looked up to see me still standing there, frozen by sheer horror. They all turned as one to stare at me, like the many heads of one creature, with drooling jaws and vacant eyes. I took that as a sign to start running. I sprinted past them towards the door on the riverbank to keep the exhaustion at bay. I made myself think about what I had just seen. The red ruin that Margot had become in a matter of seconds and told myself that I couldn't go out like that. I ran without having any idea if they were still eating her or if they had started running after me. I couldn't hear anything over the sound of my own breathing. The black wooden door grew closer and closer until it loomed over me impossibly tall. I could hear them now, their feet slapping down on the ground as they tried to reach me before I escaped. I imagined their hands grasping for any part of me, my hair or my clothes or my useless left arm. I opened the door and tumbled through without really seeing what was on the other side. Immediately, I scrambled up to check whether any of them had followed me through the open door their hands outstretched into claws and their red mouths gaping. There was nothing there. No door, just an empty street. An ordinary empty street that I had walked along many times before, on my way to school or to Margot's house. Everywhere I turned, I saw normal shops, normal houses and apartments, normal cars and bikes, normal people going about their everyday lives, laughing or talking loudly. There wasn't a single staircase in sight. I survived at the staircase game. Any sane person would be grateful to simply still be alive. And I am grateful, I am. When we had first started the game, we had been so sure of ourselves. So certain that the game would turn out to be either a hoax or completely harmless. We thought that we were invincible. We were wrong. No time had passed at all since we had first entered the game and I came back out, the only survivor. I didn't bother attending my college orientation or any of the classes that I had signed up for a month ago. Instead, I focused on trying to learn more about the staircase game. Yet no matter how hard or how often I scour the internet and various paranormal discussion forums, I only ever got the same posts that I had already reread a hundred times. 
At one point, I became so frustrated that I reached out to Lucian, Pharaoh 7921. Even though I suspected he had been the one to dangle Marianne in front of Margot like a carrot. I responded to all of his old posts, sent countless PMs to him, all with no response. Either he's ignoring me or he's somewhere where there's no phone service and no Wi-Fi. I wonder if he's playing the game again, and if so, who he's playing it with. The truth is, guilt and self-loathing eat at me every day and every hour, every minute and every second of every day. Each night I go to sleep. I'm back in the game watching Jonathan scream at me from behind the mirrors or Margot being torn apart. I keep wondering why I was the one who survived. I replay everything that happened during the game over and over again, analyzing each moment to see if I could have done something anything differently. If there was really any logic to the way that the world worked, then I should have been the one who lost the game, not Jonathan or Margot. Was it really through pure chance, pure luck that I survived? Which brings me to today. I woke up this morning realizing that there's only one thing left to do. I have to play the staircase game again. You probably think I'm crazy, but I want to. No, I need to rescue Jonathan. In my dreams, his reflections are hunting me down as he wanders the cold and colorless world behind the mirrors. I need him to know that despite what it looked like, I didn't give up on him. I haven't given up on him. Don't get me wrong, I'm not going to sacrifice anyone for Jonathan, no matter how much I love him. Unlike Margot, I'm not selfish enough to think that trading one person's life for another is a fair trade. And even if I did, I wouldn't lie to myself. I wouldn't pretend that I was doing the right thing, or that I had no choice about doing it. That's why I wrote this post. If you've read all of this and believe me, then you know everything that I do about the game. I'm searching for someone who understands the risks. Someone who is brave enough and curious enough to play anyways. Maybe someone who's so unhappy here that they would jump at the chance to explore another world. Or someone who wants to study the game, run experiments on it and make new scientific discoveries. Or maybe someone who survived similar supernatural games before. Someone who's always believed in the paranormal, and who knows how dangerous a simple game can be. If that sounds like you, please reach out to me. You and I can play the staircase game together. I hope you all enjoyed this week's stories. As always, wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you are safe and sound. And stay creepy.